in five, three. That's tomorrow, and that is it. Again, five, four. That's tomorrow, and that is it for us today. And we will leave you with a... I can't do it. Okay. We'll do it live. Okay. We'll, no. we'll do it live! Fuck it! Do it live! I can, I'll write it, and we'll do it live! Nick, oh, thing sucks! Who is your daddy, Five, four, and what three. does he do? End of day. The freedom of speech is being taken away. If you don't read the newspaper, you're on and welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation. First time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a different kind of show, a place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity. Live and direct right now on the TuneIn radio app. Search End of Days and you'll find the 24-7 network. Or go to michaeldeacon.com for any episode you might have missed. My guest tonight is Michael Aquino. Michael is a Lieutenant Colonel Psychological Operations at U.S. Army. Retired now. He is the founder of the Temple of Set. He is also the author of numerous books, such as the Mind War series and his latest book, Ghost Rides. Once again, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. Welcome back for another dose of the Michael Deacon program. Always an honor and pleasure to be here. Thank you to those listening here in America and those who listen outside of America. Thank you for your great support. Hello to those on the live stream right now and, of course, our friends on YouTube. I've got an interesting show for you tonight. Dr. Michael Aquino joins me in moments. If you missed the last program, Jason Gerald was the guest. What another hectic week it's been. I've had my ups and downs this week, but what's important is that we're all here together again. Like a big, happy, dysfunctional family, we survived yet another week. After the interview on the second half of the show, I've got some emails to answer and, of course, some news to go over. I hope you stick around for that. I'll also be taking your calls on the second half. Now, enough of that. Let's get down to brass tacks and ring up my... Only guest tonight. See what's going on with him. Michael, is that you? This is me. Ah, welcome back to the program, Michael. Always a pleasure to speak to you, sir. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, yes. Now, of course, on our last interview, we, of course, covered quite a bit of uh, ground, and I hope to do that again with you. All right. And, of course, the last time you were here, you caused a bit of a backlash with some of the listeners. It seems like lots of people out there still consider you a bit of a boogeyman, Michael. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. if you are going to spend most of your life poking into you know, forbidden mysteries, so to speak, then I suppose that's going to raise controversy. Many people have, uh, I suppose, cherished personal images of reality, whether it's religious or political, and they don't like it when you disturb these kinds of things, even if you aren't really doing so or setting out to do so maliciously. But just the fact that you might ruffle some feathers 
um, can upset people. You know, they don't like they don't like their comfort level um, distressed. You know, in, they really don't. Way. Yeah, they really don't. And of course, um, I run a bit of a controversial program. People will say, and of course, you're an individual who has been surrounded by controversy for such a long time. And even in our last interview, like I said, it caused a bit of backlash, and I've even uh, inherited some of um, your most vocal critics as well. I even went, I even clashed heads with with a few of them on air. Michael. Well, my my answer to critics is pretty much the same these days. That at this point in my life, I've written a total of about uh, thirteen books, in which I've gone into great detail on a number of subjects of interest to me, much more detail with much more uh, sources and bibliographical references and footnotes than I could ever hope to do in a interview like this. So I suggest to them that if you want to uh, take a poke at me, you know, pick up the book in question of the, in the subject area that's of interest to you, read it, and my goodness, if you find holes in it, um, have at it. You know, uh, let me know, too, because I'm not interested in deceiving anybody else or myself. Any good scholar will have the same sort of attitude that um, if he has a proposition or an interpretation of some fact or idea or theory, uh, then he puts it out there and he wishes to know if he's right. And he also wishes to know if he's wrong. If you can't stand criticism, you know, then stay the hell out of the kitchen, all right, because you're going to get it. So <laughs> my only request yes. is that people do take the time to find out what I what I actually say and the reasons for it, and then um, evaluate that. Understood. Now, how are you, Michael? Are you, are you okay nowadays? Well, I'm uh, physically, my health is a little on the precarious side. As you know, I went through two big cancer operations, and uh, I'm now missing uh, my complete colon and uh, had a lot of my guts rearranged, so to speak. So I'm a little on the shaky side, but uh, I'm not pushing up daisies just yet. And uh, the the uh, time spent recuperating has also been a, a good research time for me to work on things like these books. So uh, when fate hands you a lemon, you know, you make lemonade. Right. Yeah. In an email, you said... You thought it might have been your end of days pretty soon for a moment there, Michael. Well, I still, uh, I'm still teetering on the edge there. And, uh, it was therefore important to me to get to work on these books, make sure that the stuff that I'd learned throughout my time here was recorded so that if I uh, croak at some point, then, uh, my ideas don't necessarily have to croak with me. People can still kick me around, um, after I've uh, left the planet, so to speak, uh, and they'll have the grounds to look at uh, these ideas again. So I don't mind. I don't mind that, and I'm very satisfied that I've taken the time that which I have been on the planet and used it responsibly and productively as best I can. So I don't. Uh, uh, I'm not concerned at all about, uh, as I said, leaving before I've done the things important to me to do here. Yes, and before we get into your background here, I apologize for not doing so. Um, but you know, when I talk to you, usually I'll have notes, but all of those notes go right out the window when we talk, Michael. <laughs> sure. 
It just seems, it just seems to happen. And myself, Michael, I've been kind of sick. I've been laying in bed, a bit of a sore throat, and it's caused me to take a little bit of time from doing the program. And I don't know about you, but when I get really sick, I'm laying in bed and I'm hating everything. I'm hating my life. I'm, I'm hating, I'm hating the world basically. And I'm, I'm wondering now, Michael, when you are sick, do you feel uh, any sort of way? Um, do you ever ponder the afterlife? Well, I've long since realized that the incarnate part of your existence is only a training wheels phase. Many people will have very strong ideas about a quote-unquote afterlife, meaning a quote life after death, which they right. usually which they usually attribute to some mythology or other. But uh, I've gone after the question in a much more meth- uh, methodical way because I'm not interested again in a mythology or in uh, pipe dreams or in deceiving myself. But I was very interested, still have always been very interested in in the thing that is the ultimate self. You know, the the ultimate you um, that is sort of a passenger in your physical body, and how how connected it is, how dependent it is upon that physical body. And I long since come to the conclusion, uh, and had it reinforced by all my further research into this area, that the essential thing that is Michael me or Michael you is simply uh, temporarily using a physical body to realize itself, to define itself against uh, the objective universe's uh, manifestations that are external to it. So it's a way of, of sort of finding out who you are by bashing yourself physically against the things that you aren't. And that gives you an initial sense of identity. But once you have that identity, then you become less dependent upon your physical body to reinforce it. Then you begin to realize what uh, you really are, which is the metaphysical entity that is Michael, whether you or me. And the more that you understand that, then the less uh, of concern your body is. At this point, um, I have absolutely uh, no doubt that when this body crumbles around me, that I will continue right on. But I will continue right on um, in actually a much more integrated sense, a much uh, stronger sense, a sense in which I'm actually freed from the limitations of being buffeted by all the physical senses that the uh, location in this body uh, inflicts. Because as long as you are incarnate in a body, then you are, as I point out in uh, Mind War, right. continuously battered by all the physical sense- senses, which tend to reinforce the notion that you are the sum total of your physical senses. However, uh, researchers such as Dr. John Lilly, who, of course, blazed the trail in uh, terms of sensory deprivation in his uh, isolation tank studies back in the 60s and 70s, uh, who was caricatured in the movie Altered States and the book Altered States, you know, by Patty Chayefsky, uh, shows that your self, your consciousness, not only continues, but is actually much stronger and more integral as the sensory input is removed. You don't collapse. You don't go insane. You don't lose your sense of identity. These things all become stronger. And... The ancient Egyptians knew this as well, and they did uh, a great deal of um, writing and thinking concerning the soul and actually, uh, or the mind star as I call it, 
and uh, uh, they indeed divided it into eight subdivisions of levels of consciousness that focused on different aspects of your personal existence and self-realization. And those eight uh, emanations of your mind star, as I like to call it, uh, are all discussed in detail in my book, Mind Star, so, which is sort of a handbook for the human soul, as it were. So I would suggest to people who are concerned about their immortality, uh, don't worry about uh, mythology. You want to look at the actual evidence for this uh, in a very, uh, a very personal sense that you can understand when you're thinking about it yourself, not whether you're believing some myth cycle, but what when you look at it and you have something pointed out to you on the printed page as a concept, it either it, it'll click right into your head and you'll say, yes, I understand that. I sense that. I'm aware of that. I realize that. That's me. And I've said over and over again that um, people don't learn a whole lot in my books that they don't already know. They just have it brought to their attention, what they already know. <laughs> right. There's a bit of common sense that goes along with your books um, for those who are in tuned, that is. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned John Milley. Um, what were your thoughts and opinions on the whole uh, LSD experiments with dolphins? Well, uh, I don't remember that he tried LSD with dolphins. I know that he was interested in, in research concerning dolphin intelligence. Right. Uh, because they are um, known to be the next smartest animal on the on the planet next to ourselves, uh, and possibly more so. You don't know because they don't talk to us a whole lot. But uh, uh, he was obviously interested in the notion of animal intelligence, animal consciousness, and dolphins were obviously the the best prospect to research this. I suppose he could have gone after other primates like chimpanzees and things, but he chose dolphins. That was a rather interesting choice. As far as LSD is concerned, he probably got off on this um, because he was initially working with um, isolation tanks, but he kept finding that there was a limit to the isolation tank because people's minds were so very strongly entrained to their senses that uh, they tended to try to clutch to them, even in the confines of uh, an isolation tank. So uh, they would become uh, frightened. They would they would sort of try to imagine uh, their physical senses again and reconstruct themselves to that. So he was looking for something that would let go, that would sort of let people float away from the trap of the physical sense dependency and allow their mind to sort of fly free. And from what he had read of the initial experiments of people like Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, and so on, uh, he thought that perhaps LSD was this kind of a, um, a releasing device. Uh, same thing with uh, Castagnat and the uh, Mexican mushroom experience and so on that's used as a substitute for this in um, altered states. So... He experimented in his um, book, uh, The Deep Self. He recounts his experiments with using both the isolation tank and uh, an LSD at the same time. He found he didn't really need it himself because he wasn't really uh, subject to this clutching effort to uh, 
to sort of uh, cling to the physical sensory impressions. But he did find that for at least some subjects, it was a help that way. In the movie uh, of Altered States, um, you find that the John Lilly character there, Edward Jessup, Dr. Edward Jessup, um, is sort of taken down a, a, a horror movie path where he regresses to a sort of a primitive caveman and then back to a sort of a protoplasm. Um, that's sort of unfortunate, but the movie had to be um, put together as a horror movie, you know, for the sake of audiences, really. And uh, I guess that's the way they chose to do it. But that isn't really what Lily found with it. This is a really a fascinating area of right. exploration. You're going into the mysteries of your soul. That's that's probably the greatest adventure that you possibly can undertake. Um, that's the the real big question of who exactly you know you are uh, really, not just what your physical person is, but uh, who the thing that's the ultimate you is when you cut away all the externalities, all the clothing, the cars, you know, the the living conditions, the the monetary levels, the um, the other attachments and things like this, when you strip away everything and get to the thing that's the ultimate you, those eight uh, emanations of the mind star that the Egyptians identified, it's absolutely fascinating. It truly is. Truly is. Now, Michael, I am a bit amazed that there's a new group of listeners out there who don't quite know uh, who you are. So I figured we could sort of go over your background just a bit here for a few. Okay. So, yeah, let, let's go back in time. You had a pretty normal upbringing, right? Yes. Um, I uh, was what you might call an Eisenhower kid. You know, I sort of grew up in the cultural, socio, socio-cultural climate as you see in a, a movie like Pleasantville in the 1950s. I had uh, a very uh, happy personal family life. I was an only child. My father was a, an investment broker and my um, mother was a um, unemployed but uh, a very uh, skilled professional artist and writer and, and uh, very much involved with a variety of uh, positive social activities. She was one of the people who helped found uh, the Pacifica Foundation and KPFA Radio out here and KPFK down in Los Angeles um, and uh, was an accomplished sculptor, you know, uh, poet, painter, things. There's one of her books of uh, childhood poetry that I edited uh, called Pegasus and Pinfeathers that people can even today find on Amazon. She was... Um, uh, quite a smart cookie. She had an IQ of about 187, was written up in uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not, uh, was one of the special group of what they called Terman children, studied by Stanford uh, uh, psychologist Lewis Terman, Professor Terman, uh, who was looking for uh, genius children to keep track of throughout their lives and so on. Um, my father was um, a high school graduate. My mother, by the way, went through Stanford in three years, just sort of setting that on fire. My father was a high school graduate, um, an Italian immigrant as a child. Uh, he grew up with a family in uh, Portland, Oregon. His father immigrated from Italy during the Mussolini era to get away from fascism and uh, started up a barber shop, you know, on the uh, waterfront in Portland, Oregon. And, uh, my father went through high school in Portland, 
later on became uh, a, uh, a seaman on the merchant ships that went up and down the uh, West Coast and one stop in uh, San Francisco, I guess he ran into my mother and it was one of those lady in the tramp things, you know. Ah, I see. Which is this why I'm here. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I was... I was brought up, my father, by the way, was a Roman Catholic, but an Italian Roman Catholic, which is a very casual kind of thing. Um, Roman Catholicism in Italy is uh, a social and a community thing rather than some sort of a fanatic thing. So uh, Italians take it with interest, but don't, don't tend to get uh, obsessed with it. My mother was never really interested in conventional religion one way or the other. When it came time to get married to dad, she f figured that she should probably do it in some kind of a Christian ceremony. So she looked around to see if she could find a Christian church that um, uh, didn't bother her intellectually, and she finally settled on the Swedenborgians, ah. which is a, uh, a very ecologically oriented sort of um, – arts and crafts kind of uh, version of Christianity, um, sort of sort of uh, um, very earth-oriented, very, uh, as I said, very Frank Lloyd Wright kind of thing. They have beautiful crafted uh, churches here that are very, uh, very earth-sympathetic. Um, and so she became a Swedenborgian, uh, long enough to get married anyway and they were married in the Swedenborgian church. They didn't bring me up in any particular religion. They just let me, um, exposed me to a variety of different uh, Christian sects and so on to see if any of them took. Um, I wasn't really interested in any of them. Uh, I, I got, uh, I, I sort of tossed that off about the same time I lost interest in the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. And by the time I was um, in college, I was, uh, I would call myself a sort of a casual existentialist, meaning that I didn't, I wasn't really passionately gripped by any philosophy or religion one way or the other. And I sort of took things on a uh, sort of a casual, mature, uh, take it as it comes, rational basis. Uh, w one second, Michael, I'm trying to, sure. I'm trying to envision you, what you must have been like in high school and college. Um, were, were you a quiet type of kid? You kept to yourself. Uh, what yeah, were you like? I well, I I probably was. I I um I had a lot of interest in uh, the Boy Scouts of America. I went through and got my Eagle Scout badge and uh, uh, was inducted into the Honor Camping Society, the Order of the Arrow, uh, and ultimately uh, recognized to their highest national honor, the Vigil Honor. Uh, and I was uh, also national commander, elected all national commander of the Eagle Scout Honor Society, which gives you an, an indication of my level of interest in that, in scouting. And um, uh, other than that, uh, when I went through high school, um, I, I, I spent most of my time just sort of um, studying, you know, because I wanted to get into a good university. Right. And at the same time, I became interested in high school ROTC, which they had at Santa Barbara High School, and um, wound up in my by my senior year as the uh, cadet colonel in charge of the uh, whole school uh, battalion there. So I was pretty successful at that. I received a nomination to West Point 
because I was thinking of a military career. But I also had an Army ROTC scholarship uh, to the University of California. And after taking a look at uh, both West Point and UC Santa Barbara, I decided on UC Santa Barbara. So I went through that as an undergraduate, took a BA in political science in 1968, and uh, then went on to active duty as uh, an Army officer. I immediately volunteered for um, special forces and for psychological operations and for service in Vietnam. So as soon as I was in the Army, they started throwing me out of airplanes and uh, uh, sent me to uh, PSYOP and special forces uh, schools and then sent me in 1969 over to Southeast Asia where I was for the next year and came back in 1970. and around 1969, incidentally, is when I uh, first discovered and then joined the Church of Satan, uh, not for reasons of hating any other religion, but right. because I was very positively impressed by Anton LaVey, who approached Satanism as a sort of a commentary and a critique of what he felt to be moral defects of conventional religion and society. He was... Um, very much uh, an advocate of anti-hypocrisy, of personal honesty, of taking responsibility for yourself instead of blaming it on on uh, other factors. And all those were things that I liked. Uh, he was a person with a great sense of humor. He also had a, uh, a liking for uh, spookiness and old monster movies and things like this. And uh, uh, so did I. Uh, some people sometimes say, well, what did you read as a kid? Well, I grew up on Mad Magazine and uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland. So if you put those two together, you get me. Good stuff, <laughs> yes. And when, when you so, joined the Church of Satan, um, what did Dad think? Well, my parents um, my parents had met Anton LaVey. They liked him as an individual. They didn't think he was uh, a phony or a jerk or anything, but they did they were somewhat concerned because they said, no matter how good this guy is, and and you know you may know him as a person, uh, joining an institution with a name like Church of Satan is going to put a stamp on you that may cause you uh, troubles later in life. So just be sure that you're uh, that you think that this means enough to you so that you're willing to put up with that. Uh, and that was that was good common sense. I mean, right. I appreciated the practicality of it, but. The more I thought of it, the more I decided that the moral and uh, metaphysical interests and explorations of the Church of Satan did mean that much to me. So that I decided, well, okay, I'll just, you know, take a shot at this and see what happens. And uh, so by the time I came back from Vietnam in 1970, uh, I was also ordained to the Satanic Priesthood. I was then assigned to Fort Knox, Kentucky until 1972, where I worked for uh, Brigadier General George Patton, the son of the old blood and guts of World War II. And uh, at that time, I was also um, head of the Church of Satan's um, grotto in Louisville, Kentucky, which caused quite a local sensation. And uh, then in uh, uh, after 1972, I resigned the regular army, went back to being a reserve officer because I wanted to go back into graduate school and I had uh, the GI Bill to work with. So I took a part-time job at UC Santa Barbara and uh, did my master's and my PhD in political science there. Uh, 
and then uh, after that, I had the opportunity to go back into the Army again uh, as an active duty reserve officer. So I did that until um, 1990. That sort of gives you a, a rough career progression. Right. And can we talk about your time in Vietnam? Sure. I went over. Yeah, what was that I, like for you? At, well, at that point, as I said, I was a political scientist. Um, I felt very strongly that uh, I was interested in um, – I had already been, as I said, through the resident course of psychological operations or PSYOP right. uh, at Fort Bragg. And I was very interested in that because um, I had discovered it as an ROTC cadet at UCSB and had actually taken the non-resident correspondence course while I was still a cadet. I was interested because – uh, it was a way of winning battles and wars without shooting anybody or bombing them. And I liked that idea. You know, it, it said the way to win things is to argue the other side into cooperating with you, so to speak. And of course, the usual interpretation of that is uh, propaganda. Um, and that's what we relied upon mostly in that kind of a battlefield environment. Uh, so when I went to Vietnam, I was... Um, uh, assigned to the PSYOP group that we had over there at the time, the fourth psychological operations group, which handled all of that area of Southeast Asia. And I was uh, particularly assigned uh, as a command and control PSYOP officer in what they called three core tactical zone, which was the area of the country, the, the quarter of the country around Saigon and over to the Cambodian border. So I spent most of my year there, and a lot of it was either with the Air Force or with various civilian agencies that were functioning in the country, uh, also with some American units and, of course, special forces units that were there, and, uh, and of course, with the Vietnamese and the Montagnards. So uh, I was – my experience was actually not too terribly different from that of Captain Willard in uh, Apocalypse Now, who was a sort of an individual captain uh, at that time. I was a captain in rank at the same time, uh, who went off on, on specific individual assignments uh, to take care of, of hard-to-take-care-of situations. So as often as not, I was either in a helicopter or on foot or uh, in, a, uh, in a truck driving myself around the country uh, all by myself, uh, in and out of villages, which might or might not have been Viet Cong controlled, um, simply because uh, that was the way to get to talk to people and to figure out where I could do some good. So uh, that was the way that I went at my year over there. Um, and uh, when I came back, I uh, had received the Bronze Star and the Air Medal, you know, for uh, uh, both ground operations and air operations, the Vietnamese Cross of Gallantry from the uh, Vietnamese government, and uh, and and so on. Yes, and can we talk a little bit about Operation Wonder in Seoul? I've always been uh, quite curious to pick your brain on that. <laughs> sure, Wandering Seoul is uh, or Rubber Soul, as we sometimes joked about it, uh, you know, uh, after the Beatles album. But uh, Wandering Soul is. A very interesting, one of a number of interesting propaganda tapes that we worked up uh, while I was over there. And uh, if your audience is curious, they can Google 
wandering soul on the internet and they can find um sound sound uh you know clips of it so that they can actually listen to it yeah and the whole idea of it was that we were um trying to figure out you know ways to make the uh north vietnamese and the viet cong soldiers um surrender or put down their arms or come over to our other side or the south vietnamese side and uh we knew that there was a strong uh, animistic and also Buddhist um, element within the uh, both the Viet Cong and the uh, North Vietnamese. Now, it was primarily the South Vietnamese who were who had uh, Catholicism there, but um, so we weren't too worried about uh, the impact on them. But we decided to devise a tape that professed to be the uh, soul of a an enemy soldier who had been killed in combat and had left been left on the battlefield. And uh, there's a very strong um, fear of being left unburied, you know, among the uh, uh, the Vietnamese, the, the Buddhists, and the animists. So if they had to leave the battlefield in a hurry because a lot of uh, southern troops or American troops were coming in in massive reinforcements, they were not very happy about that. And this audio tape then purported to be the soul of a uh, killed enemy soldier who was now doomed to wander eternally through uh, the Buddhist afterworld uh, and deal with all these uh, monsters and demons and things that were there. So he was uh, uh, crying out and uh, and shrieking and, and generally very unhappy with his situation. And uh, we would take this, uh, we created the tape down at the laboratory of the Joint U.S. Public Affairs Office, or JUSPAL, in Saigon, which was the civilian oversight of the 4th PSYOP group. JUSPAL was sort of a joint operation of the U.S. State Department and uh, the CIA, and they had all the fancy laboratories and things that we needed to do this down there. So put together the the soundtrack and put this thing on a cassette tape, and we'd take it up in uh, a helicopter during sheet lightning storms at night over there and fly over enemy areas and then just broadcast this thing uh, over these loudspeakers down from a, a height that was so high up that you couldn't hear the rotor blades, but you could hear this voice coming out of these lightning storms at night, and it was pretty creepy. It sounds so creepy. We had quite a few. We had we indeed had quite a few people. Um, surrender and come over to our side saying they didn't pay any attention to the stupid American propaganda, but they'd heard one of their uh, fellows talking to them from the afterworld, and that freaked them out. So now oh, they wow. were. <laughs> yeah, it's like, who, who comes we up with this? Them. My goodness. That, that, that is was awful. wandering soul. <laughs> yeah, that, that. And again, it, it didn't physically hurt anybody, you know, but it did scare people. And the whole idea, as I said, was to get people to lay down their weapons and come on over to the uh, – you know, to the uh, uh, side that we were supporting. So that was the story of Wandering Soul. Very interesting stuff there. Um, when you were in Vietnam, did you also write the Diabolicon there? Yes. Um, in my leisure time, which wasn't a whole lot, uh, one of the things that I had uh, taken with me was a copy of uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost. At that time, I was sort of interested in in the classical, you might say, history of Satanism. And Paradise Lost is one of the great epics, of course, by John Milton. Uh, and I was um, 
fascinated with it, uh, as I would be any classical work, but I also thought that it was obviously sort of slanted towards a uh, Judeo-Christian interpretation of events that might not necessarily be the same if it were looked at from the standpoint of Satan and and his angels. So I decided that I might try to write a, a sort of a contrasting story to Paradise Lost uh, called The Diabolicon, which I did. And it took me several months to get it right because uh, it was the basically the, covered the same ground as Paradise Lost, but from the um, point of view of Satan and various uh, demons uh, that he uh, was associated with at that time. When I got it all done, then I um, sent it off to Anton LaVey in San Francisco and said a little present from the combat zone here. And he sent back his appreciation and said he liked it a great deal and was going to incorporate it into uh, Church of Satan um, uh, rituals and workings there uh, where appropriate. So I thought that was uh, very nice. Chapter two of it was written by um, Beelzebub, and I guess he didn't like the first version because when I got chapter two done, um, uh, the next day when I was out in the field uh, near Lai K in uh, Three Corps, uh, there was a Vietnamese, North Vietnamese rocket attack, and one of the rockets hit my hooch and blew the uh, Book of Belial or Beelzebub or whatever all to pieces, so I had to start all over and redo that one. Wow. I'm sure that freaked you out. Well, I just figured he didn't like it, so I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. So you you come back uh, to America safe and sound, and uh, what happens next? Well, uh, the Vietnam War. I mean, and I was all over Southeast Asia, uh, not just in Vietnam. Uh, it was quite an eye opener in terms of what the world outside of Pleasantville, United States, was like, because we're a very privileged and insulated country here. And after World War II, of course, uh, the United States was in an economic situation where it was pretty much uh, predatory on the rest of the world um, in terms of economic relationships. So all of us in the United States lived in a, and still live in a sort of an economic cocoon, you know, where we're much more comfortable than a lot of the rest of the planet. Right. So a year in Southeast Asia showed me just how dire and how desperate um, people outside this cocoon can be through no fault of their own uh, and the kinds of stresses, you know, that, that move them. So I, I came home much more sobered. It wasn't so much a question of being, you know, pro or anti-war per se, although I developed, a, I always had a great hatred of war uh, in terms of being sort of a mindless, destructive thing. That's why I became, as I mentioned earlier, interested in PSYOP. Right. Uh, but after a year in Southeast Asia and of seeing this up close and of seeing a lot of people killed right in front of me and participating, you know, in, in firefights and things, um, I really developed a, a hatred of this whole concept of, of violent war, or as I would later call it, phys war, physical war, and resolved that if some at some point I could do something about it, I would take that opportunity. One of the reasons I went back to graduate school in political science, of course, was to beef up my knowledge level and credentials in that field uh, to see if uh, if the the realm of of politics and government um, held some solutions there, or at least uh, had some doors open, you know, towards solutions. So that was one of the reasons I went there. And from when I went back into the army in 1980. Uh, 
I was also uh, assigned in San Francisco at that time as the USAR advisor to the uh, Presidio headquarters in the city. And I used that time also as uh, I took on an adjunct professorship at Golden Gate University in the city and taught political science there for six years. And during that time, um, honed, you know, my expertise in the subject and also uh, was very, very interested in the feedback that I would get from my students as to whether or not I was in a productive dialogue with them because I'm not one of those people that likes to just teach something that you have to memorize and then spout back. I wanted to see if I could awaken interest and understanding in people that they would take with them Certainly, yeah. and use in their lives. So that was my goal and that was you know, the way I went at being a professor. And generally, my feeling was that I had a very great time with all the students that I had um, the whole time. I mean, it, it, we were like a uh, you know, a sort of a coffee house together, you might say, every time the classes and the seminars would get together, um, where we all just took the subject of the moment and then just chewed it up and, you know, kind of batted it around amongst ourselves until we had a kind of a joint understanding on it. So I thought that was just great. You know, I sort of took as a model some of the best professors that I'd had and, uh, and, and tried to emulate them and tried not to emulate the professors who'd been jerks. <laughs> <laughs> right. You seem like you would be a, actually a, a really good professor. It would be very interesting to actually have you uh, to face you rather in a schoolroom setting. That'd be quite interesting. Oh, it was uh, it was enormous fun. I taught political philosophy, ancient, medieval, and modern. I taught international relations. I taught American foreign policy and American government, and a class on the United Nations. And my style was that I never used, you know, multiple choice questions or memory tests because I hate that kind of thing. Uh, all my tests were essay and they were all open book and open note. And I would actually tell the students what the test questions were uh, a week or so in advance. So the, the, the control was that you couldn't bring in to um, the test a pre-written out blue book or something. Um, you would have an opportunity to write for the same amount of time as anybody else, but you could have all your notes. You could have um, uh, your textbooks with you if you needed to refer to them, uh, because I wasn't testing people's ability to memorize stuff. I was testing right. their ability to think and communicate. And so they were always essay tests, and then I would take those and I would write a critique. I didn't just give letter grades. I always wrote a critique on each test, which sometimes was as long or longer than the answer that the student put down as to no, that's funny. Uh, how effective they were. And actually, uh, one of my discoveries at that time was what a terrible job the United States was doing on at the secondary school level in teaching kids how to do research and think and write effectively. And I used to spend a couple of uh, initial class sessions with almost every course um, hammering, you know, research skills and writing skills into students so that they, it, I said, it doesn't do you any good to be smart on something if you can't communicate your ideas effectively. So that was, uh, you know, sort of A1, you know, on the uh, on the agenda of what I would cover in the curriculum. Very nice. And, of course, uh, during this time, I can imagine there was some sort of uh, issues with uh, Dr. LeVay and yourself, Michael. Well, um, we had a great time for the first 10 years of the Church of Satan. Uh, we worked very well together. I was basically the next highest initiate to himself. Um, 
in the in the church. I, I worked on the national level with him and uh, his wife Diane. And the Church of Satan was evolving, I thought, very well and very nicely, but it also had a lot of growing pains because people, some people would try and join it for the wrong reasons. They've been watching too many monster movies, you know, and they thought it was uh, a sex club or they thought it was uh, mean or nasty or a way to get even with people or something like this. Uh, a lot of people uh, still believe that to, to, yeah, to this well, day. You know, I mean, sure, because people would hear the name Satan, and if they didn't know anything else about it, they'd say, oh, this is evil, bad, nasty, you know. So a church dedicated to that must be evil, bad, and nasty. And so we used to, it was a little difficult when you, when people would join, and I'd say, well, you know, welcome to a church in which a lot of the uh, your materials are coming from the uh, former national commander of the Eagle Scouts, of the Boy Scouts of America, you know. And that I actually joined the church because I thought it was the next step up towards higher morality from the Boy Scouts, you know. Uh, and <laughs> so Anton himself, as I said, he was a man with a, he was an artist really with a great sense of, of humor. He was, uh, he was, he personally was a high school dropout, but he was very intelligent and very actively self-educated. So he didn't suffer from being a doofus at all. A huge library and was constantly working to improve himself. He held himself to a very high standard. But um, in 1975, there was a a crisis because, uh, for reasons which I think were probably mostly economic, because uh, the Church of Satan didn't didn't pay as a profession really, and it was always a struggle for him. He decided that he was going to sort of reconfigure it into more of a money-making operation than uh, than simply a metaphysical one. And he announced that the satanic initiatory degrees, including the satanic priesthood, were going to be uh, basically up for sale for monetary contributions. A lot of the rest of us uh, in the priesthood thought this was a, a betrayal of the higher principles of the organization, you know, you don't, you don't buy a priesthood. I mean, you, this is a, a very high metaphysical calling. And uh, so we, we left and uh, instead we founded the Temple of Set. And the Church of Satan basically disintegrated as a genuine religion at that time, although Anton continued to use it until the end of his life as a personal, you know, business and sort of uh, money-making device. But it was a very, very, Shocking and uh, sad um, separation for myself and a lot of us because Anton had always been, as I said, the champion of anti-hypocrisy. And then suddenly he was taking what we thought was a sort of a, a hypocritical uh, switch, you know, at this point and, and selling out. And we were very unhappy with that. So it was not um, not a happy time at all. Yeah, that uh, must have been a, a pretty big Right, it must have been a pretty big blow for you to see someone that you respected, and obviously you, you cared for him, and to see oh, him yes. take yeah, and, and to see him take this route. Uh, I'm I sure. Loved him and, mm-hmm. I loved him and Diane like my own parents. I would have taken a bullet for him, and uh, and he was just a nice guy, you know. And his wife Diane is a, a wonderful lady, you know. I mean, we're not talking about a couple of con artists or jerks or or people like that. We're talking about some really sweet people. And it was very, very distressing to have things sort of collapsing, as I said, down like that. And um, also, uh, as you can imagine, we had had, although the Church of Satan had been um, 
discussing itself and handling its public relations for the previous decade, we still kept running into this problem that in the in the mythology of Judeo Christianity, Satan is the bad guy by definition. You know, God's a good guy, Jesus is a good guy, Satan's the bad guy, and I don't care how you want to slice and dice the pie. It, it sort of is pre prefixed that way. So as hard as we tried to portray Satanism in a positive light, it was always an uphill struggle. And one of the reasons that it was an uphill struggle was because we were sort of trapped in this Judeo-Christian iconography, you know, this symbolism. So that's one of the reasons that in 1975, we just jettisoned the whole history of Judeo-Christianity and went back to find the previous center of this same principle of uh, personal consciousness and we found it in ancient Egypt in the uh, person of the Netur or God Set, hence the Temple of Set, which is has nothing whatever to do with any aspect of Judeo-Christianity. Right. And do you believe if um, Anton LaVey was still alive, your differences could have been settled by now? I always thought that I'd always hoped that they could be all the way along. Uh, when I wrote my huge two-volume work called The Church of Satan, in which I sought to um, memorialize and, and capture sort of the the best history of the entire concept and organization, and of course of himself personally. Every I went through eight editions of it over the years since 1982, uh, and uh, every time I would do another edition, the first thing I'd do would be to send a copy to him, to Diane, and say, um, anything in here that you think is unfair, inaccurate, uh, um, you know, uh, biased or or otherwise shouldn't be here, please, please, you know, feel welcome to let me know and, you know, let's talk about it and so on. And I never received any response, you know, whatever uh, from either of them on that, but at least I made the gesture. I never had any interest in uh, uh, in hating, you know, either of them or whatever. As I said, I felt nothing but unhappiness about the situation. So the continued estrangement was just a decision that he, you know, had decided to uh, continue instead of instead of me. I can't do anything about that, but there was no point in trying to force myself, you know, on on them if they if they weren't receptive. Yes, his passing must have upset you then. Well, he he had a pretty. I think from what I heard, he had a pretty unhappy time of it after 1975. Um, you know, the the thing that had really energized him, the as I said, this wonderful artistic morality and uh, and um, a higher vision that he had before then was just gone. And after that, he lived in a world of uh, escapism and uh, and nostalgia for the for 1940s uh, noir films and things like that. And uh, uh, he just sort of went on that way until he finally uh, got ill and uh, and passed away. So I I just don't think he had a very happy time of it. Later on in the late 80s, um, he. Uh, and uh, Diane, his his wife, had sort of had enough of this and separated from him. And there was a very acrimonious uh, palimony suit, which also resulted in the bankruptcy of the uh, filing for bankruptcy of the Church of Satan. So it was a pretty, as I said, a pretty unhappy, pretty sordid mess that I I watched from the sidelines, and I wasn't very happy about any of it. But uh, again, there was nothing to be done about it. You know. Oh yes. Now I was curious what you, uh, your opinion is rather on the beliefs of uh, the Muslim religion. Any thoughts and opinions there? Well, um, 
Islam is another spin-off of Judaism like Christianity is. Uh, if you're going to throw Judaism in the trash can, then you throw Islam and Christianity in the trash can along with it. Uh, these things, if you go back into the history of these things, of course, uh, what we know today is Judaism um, actually began um, you know, way back in, in uh, antiquity as uh, one of a number of Canaanite um, gods, you know, there was a whole bunch of them at that time in uh, in, in ancient Canaan. Uh, people like you know Baal and Marduk and uh, and Moloch, and another one of them, a particularly nasty one, was a god called El E L. And one particular group of the various wandering uh, vagabonds that made up the different Canaanite tribes at that time decided to pick El as their uh, as their personal totem god, and that was the god that is the was later uh, renamed by that group as it as it solidified into um, the ancient uh, nation of Israel and Judah as uh, YHVH or Jehovah. You you'll still find the vestiges of that in words like El Ohim, you know the, um, the the personages of El or the person of El. So El is the is the ancient god that they chose uh, from that bunch of Canaanite ones. And as I said, they could have picked uh, some nice one, but they picked a rather nasty and, and uh, vicious one, which is why, uh, you know, the image of God, the capital G that you see in, in modern-day Judaism, is he's such a jerk, uh, so jealous, so vicious, you know, and, uh, and basically malicious uh, slave driver. So... If you're if you look at it that way, you say, well, um, this was something artificial that the uh, that the ancient Hebrews decided to settle on. Then, if there's no point to it other than that they just took some old animistic nasty god, then to heck with it, dump it. And the same thing goes for anything derived from it. So, if this same god became the basis of Christianity or of Islam or of any other spin-off variation, whether it's the Mormons or uh, uh, or, you know, Rosicrucianism or anything else like that, throw it in the trash can. So we don't have a hatred. I don't have a hatred of Islam or Christianity. I just think they're based on um, a bad premise, just like because if Judaism is a bad premise, then they're a bad premise. I agree with you on that one. And going back to, of course, darker times, I'm referring back to the Presidio uh, daycare scandal that broke out and of course, your name, uh, for many people in the conspiracy world, your name seems to be brought up quite a bit, Michael. Well, that, I, that's uh, actually, I think that it's only the lunatic fringe really that brings it up anymore because what happened, you know, this country and this civilization over here goes through various scares when it has witch hunts. You know, in the, the time of World War II, it was Nazis, you know, and Japs. And then after the war, it became commies, you know, and the Red Scare of the 50s. Right. And then, and then, uh, uh, after the fall of communism, uh, in 1989, uh, it became, oh, we have to find something else to hate. You know, they, we have to find another, another enemy, another conspiracy. So in the early 80s, when communism was beginning to fail as a, as a bugbear, suddenly it became, um, Satanists, you know, and occultists. And, and of course, the, the way to scare people the most is, they're after the kids. Okay. This all started with a 
book that was later uh, revealed uh, to be a complete fraud uh, called Michelle Remembers, published in around 1980, in which uh, some Canadian psychiatrist said that his wife under hypnosis had recalled being uh, mangled, you know, by the Church of Satan when she was a kid. Well, we never had any Church of Satan in Canada, <laughs> uh, in Montreal or whatever it is there. And, of course, the whole book was complete nonsense, but it put the idea into people's heads, just like the first person who hijacked an airliner uh, and had it flown to Cuba started a whole lot of other kooks hijacking airliners. So suddenly you had people running around the country um, saying, oh, I was abused as a kid. I have recovered memories. You know, da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, in reality, the human memory doesn't work that way. You don't have recovered memories. I mean, the as I go into in my book, uh, Mind War, which analyzes the functioning of the human brain, uh, the memory part of your brain, um, it might be, it might have parts where things are less, you get paid less attention to them, uh, you know, like you forget what you learned in uh, algebra class in, in high school or something. But the memory part of it for your experiences doesn't go away and doesn't get suppressed uh, at all. That's not the way memory functions. Uh, it's always right there. If you call back any experience in your life that's particularly unpleasant, you can pull it right up again, you know, whether it was a teacher that you particularly didn't like or or if your dad spanked you a lot or something like this. You don't have to go searching for it. You know that darn well. So the whole premise, you know, was bogus from the start, but it was exciting and it was thrilling and it was kind of like a Hollywood monster movie. And also uh, it gave people an opportunity to uh, – get headlines, make themselves important, and maybe make a lot of money. So suddenly there were uh, people um, howling about uh, obsessive, about repressive satanic daycare centers and schools and uh, and uh, things like that. And there were scores and scores of these things around the country um, during the decade. I never paid a whole lot of attention to this uh, originally because I thought it was just a crazy fad that would basically uh, wear itself out. But as it turned out, there was a lot of this, uh, these scare things going on in the military too. Um, there'd been about 20 or 30 accusations about military schools and daycare centers on army bases and air force and so on. And in 1986, I think it was, um, a number of parents on the Presidio uh, decided to um, attack a daycare teacher there named Gary Hambright, who was a, one of the daycare teachers there. Despite the fact that, that he was always surrounded by lots of other teachers at the daycare center and that um, for years and years and years, including with the kids who would, the parents would later allege things about, nothing had ever happened to the kids to make them complain about anything. And no, none of the other teachers had ever seen any improper conduct and stuff. And Gary Hambright was a, a Baptist teacher, kind of a mild-mannered guy from what I later understood about him, suddenly uh, everybody was making accusations about him, uh, except, a, in my case, a, a Presidio Christian chaplain by the name of uh, um, Adams Thompson, who waited a year uh, and then decided with his wife that they were going to make an accusation against me and my wife, since I'd been assigned to the Presidio up to 1986. Uh, 1986, to 87, I was actually reassigned to Washington, D.C., where I was a full-time resident student at the National Defense University, which is where the country picks its generals from. Uh, so I wasn't even there at the Presidio when all this was going on, but that made no difference. Accus accused anyway. Well, maybe he 
flew over here to abuse kids or something, you know. Um, and the chaplain's uh, accusations of kidnapping his his uh, daughter for for terrible satanic sexual abuse things at our home was investigated by the FBI, the San Francisco Police Department, and uh, they quickly realized by checking my attendance records in Washington, D.C., everything else, that this was a physical impossibility, as I was always recorded being present in class, you know, and at the same time as the Adams Thompson kid was at the daycare center. The, t- the child in question was examined by the Presidio Hospital and found to be a virgin with no signs whatever of any molestation. Um, the records of the kid's psychiatrist who had been uh, proclaiming this turned out to be just nothing but coaching from the psychiatrist and so on. So the whole thing uh, fizzled out, and the chaplain, uh, who had, together with his wife, had uh, immediately put in a claim against the government for $3 million, uh, didn't get it. So his scam came to nothing, and it was exposed. And for anybody who's curious, they can look up a book of mine called Extreme Prejudice, in which I, it's a huge book because I got all the information down there. Uh, I wanted to make sure that everything was out in the open on this. I detailed the entire scam. And of course, also uh, along the way, the history of uh, the the whole atmosphere around the country during the witch hunt generally. So there had never been any hint of any scandal or anything concerning myself or my wife before the Adams Thompson scam. But then because it got such sensationalism, oh, my God, he's a Satanist. He's also a sign-up officer. God, you can't get any scarier than that. <laughs> um, yes. So then all kinds of people came out of the woodworks. Well, my kid was sort of, you know, sexually abused by him, too. So was mine. So was mine. He was up there at the Bohemian Grove, you know, leading the um, Archbishop of Los Angeles and various state senators and things in, in mass murders of kids, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was completely nuts. Uh, I think David Icke decided that I was also a half reptile from the planet Venus and, you know, anyway. Oh boy. Uh, so that, that basically just started the, the, uh, lunatic fringe going. Uh, but everything after the Adams Thompson thing, uh, was obviously just a, a stunt. And, uh, to the extent that any law enforcement people took an initial look at it, they just shrugged it off as being nonsense, which it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's also the, the complete historical record of the Church of Satan as an institution which um, was very, very anti-child abuse, you know, through its entire history. And that was all documented, you know, from 1966 on all down to 1975, as people can read in my history of it. So believe me, if the if the membership of the Church of Satan all the way around the country had been involved in, in harm to children, it would have come up long before the craziness of the 1980s. So that was just a fad. And the reason that it faded, fizzled out as a fad, finally the FBI did a major study on the whole notion of satanic child abuse and just said this whole thing is, is a crock and there's never been one verified uh, you know, instance of it anywhere. But the people who were trying to get attention and make money switched to making accusations against parents and close relatives. These were people that they could prove association with and that might have assets that they could get. So suddenly in the 1990s, uh, it switched over to accusations against parents and relatives and also, interestingly, against uh, Christian churches, the kids that had association with the Catholic Church in particular, of course, uh, was involved in major, major 
accusations of child abuse, and to its discredit, a lot of those did prove to have some basis for them. Suddenly, you had um, a lot of Catholic priests um, uh, showing up as having actually committed this kind of thing, and the Catholic Church is still embroiled in this stuff. You know, the Pope is still having to deal with it, even to this day, and lots and lots of priests, you know, were kicked out. Uh, first, the church just tried to cover it up and reassign them. Now, more later, they're kicked out, defrocked. Uh, some of them are prosecuted. You know, so, I mean, it's a major thing that was going on. But we never had a single, single issue of that with any Satanist uh, or Setian. And, of course, certainly not with any Satanic priest or Setian priest. Yes, I was going to mention uh, lots of strange allegations coming from the Catholic Church, which proved to be uh, pretty true, and the uh, same with other religions. But the Temple of Set, from my understanding, has not had any of these uh, crimes committed. Not a peep. And we also have a policy that we do not permit minors at any of our activities, both ritual and non-ritual. And one of the reasons for that is that we do not believe in uh, religious indoctrination of children at all either in favor of, of uh, the Setian religion uh, or anything else. Uh, we don't attack other religions. We don't promote ours. We think that uh, children should get a good, strong, secular education, including in, in realms like philosophy and, uh, and society. And then when they're, when they're adults, if they want to make decisions on their own concerning a religion, you know, like my mother did, for example, then let them go. I mean, uh, if they want to... If they want to become Setians, that's fine. If they want to become Catholics, that's fine. It's up to them. But we don't think that you should take any kind of a kid and um, indoctrinate him into one of these things and say, you have to believe in this or you'll be punished eternally. You know. So that was our attitude, and we've always been very strict on that. So as I said, we don't even allow children present at any of our activities. That's probably a good thing. We like it. We're, we're comfortable with it. We think it's a good policy. Yeah, that way you won't have a bunch of crying kids around. Well, not just that, but as I said, I think it's unfair to children to indoctrinate them uh, into yeah, something that, like a metaphysical yeah. belief system that they really don't have the background and the education and the life experience to critique. That's true. In in uh, most religions, you're born into it. You know, if if you're born into a Christian family or you're born into a Islamic family or a Jewish family, then you're stuck. You know, you're sort of uh, trained into it, yeah. if you rebel against it, you get a lot of family punishment and a lot of social punishment. And uh, in some cases, if you don't toe the line, you're just ostracized and kicked out and disowned by your family and your community and, you know, told that you're a piece of junk. I've seen that so happen. I think that's yeah. a, you know, a lousy situation. It's unfair to kids. Um, I just, as I said, we, we in the Temple of Set have always felt that that's, 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 that is child abuse. You know, when you do something like that, you just leave them, let them grow up um, and be kids and don't try to um, program their minds into fears and hatreds of things that they can't grapple with on their own. Um, just let them, you know, let them grow up uh, normally and uh, have a good childhood. And then when they get to the point where they start thinking about metaphysical issues and, and such questions, then let them do that on their own. And then they can ask questions uh, if they want to. Yes, and I also want to quickly mention that I'm not affiliated to any political party or group, and uh, now is the time where we talk more about current issues going on. And, uh, Michael, 
Um, how would you uh, grade Donald Trump after 13 months on the job now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never been a member of any political party or interest group or PAC or anything in my whole life. Uh, sometimes people say, well, that's odd. You're a political scientist. And I said, well, I, I, I don't happen to be a, um, a Democrat. Knowing the, with, with the, uh, as a, I don't believe in democracy. I don't believe in republicanism. I don't believe in communism or any other ism. Um, I actually uh, am a Platonist. You know, I believe in the kind of um, idealistic uh, morality-based uh, republic that Plato advocated in his dialogue of that name. So uh, I don't advocate any kind of an ism or an ology, you know, in, in right. any kind of a political sense. And I've never, mm-hmm. never voted in any election, uh, never contributed any money to any political cause. Um, I, I feel that my area is to be aware of these things and to critique them knowledgeably as a political scientist, uh, as a professor when I've been doing that, and of course in my books when I've written them. Um, but uh, I don't view myself as a as a stand in line, you know, stand in line, octung, you know, true believer of anything. So when I look at somebody like Donald Trump, I look at him with the same way that I would look at a a John Kennedy or a George Bush or a, or a uh, Jimmy Carter. I just say, okay, um, here's another guy in the Oval Office uh, who doesn't have. I mean, nobody comes into that office with any background, obviously, into it. It's a learn as you go job, and we have some people who've been governors or senators or generals or something, or people from the private sector. Everybody brings a different mix of background to it. Uh, and then it's a question of how fast and how well they can work themselves into the job once they're there. And who obviously is, you know, what are their motives and who are they, who do they feel that they have to please or are responsible to? So what you have in, uh, in Donald Trump is not particularly surprising because, uh, the United States domestic you know, political culture has been going to hell for a number of decades now where a lot of the old social nets and systems that uh, had been worked up during the uh, earlier parts of the 20th century after the Great Depression and so on have been gradually dismantled. Um, you know, the, the ability of, of anybody to have a, a traditional nuclear family now is almost completely evaporated because uh, the average Man can't earn enough in a single job to support a family. Uh, the wife has to work too. That t- takes her away from the home. That wrecks the family atmosphere uh, around the kids who become, you know, latchkey kids and are sort of turned loose on their own much of the time. So the, the, the country, you know, we don't have things like maternity leave here. We don't have good medical care. We don't have um, vacation leave or paternity leave or things like that. Uh, we're very much behind a lot of the other advanced Western nations in this stuff. So the United States is a basket case in many ways socially, and it is, it's going to take a lot more than this or that person in the White House to fix it. I think that, I think that, um, I haven't really liked any president that we've had in there since Jimmy Carter. Well, I don't blame and, you. And I know that, uh, you know, a lot of people thought that Jimmy Carter was a wimp and, uh, and uh, they didn't like him, you know, for that sense. But I thought he was a great humanitarian, an honest guy, um, and not particularly beholden to um, to selfish interest groups. But everybody else that I've seen uh, since, probably since John Kennedy, and even John Kennedy had some problems. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, 
but everybody I've seen since then is, has been sort of a, a, a jerk. You know, I was always thinking to myself, this is the best we can do. You know, well, no, it isn't, you know, and, uh, a lot of people were hoping that Barack Obama was going to be a kind of a, a new, uh, Camelot, a new John Kennedy. And he turned out to be worse than George Bush in many ways. Um, same old, same old, you know, he just talked prettier and looked nicer, but when push came to shove, he was just as, as unfeeling and nasty towards, uh, ordinary people as George Bush had been. So now you get a big reaction against this, um, and you get to the point where people are offered a choice between voting for Archie Bunker and, uh, and Cruella DeVille <laughs> in the yes. last presidential election. So when you offer them that choice, um, I don't think, you know, this was one of those presidential elections when the winner was the person uh, who um, the hatred vote um, wasn't as as great against. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> like the admiration the, vote, right? It's almost like so there were more people <laughs> there were more people voting who hated Hillary than people who hated Trump. And right. That's how the election came out. My goodness. So it, now you got Donald. Now you got this goofball, <laughs> you know, Donald Trump in the White House, who didn't expect to win, and I think was completely freaked out. Uh, to find out that he'd won. Um, he didn't even have a, a, you know, a room big enough to have a victory party. And Hillary had bought these huge, uh, you know, rooms in, in Washington, in New York City, and she bought all these fancy fireworks and everything to celebrate her victory. And suddenly it all collapses in her face. And suddenly we've got Archie Bunker. And Archie Bunker comes into the White House and behaves like Archie Bunker. And uh, you know, some of the people think that it's kind of cute to have somebody in there who sort of um, seems to, to reflect the common man's attitude on things. Uh, and yet you're also dealing with somebody who in many ways is a product of um, big money and uh, and uh, old Wall Street ties. So it's it's not it's not as though you've got just a kind of a clean Archie Bunker there either. You've got a person who has old alliances. Um, who's going to take care of his friends, you know, in big business and stuff. Right. We just saw that with the tax package, you know, which delivered, you know, big benefits to the 1% and not a whole lot to everybody else. Um, you've got another scapegoat now. You know, now we're, now we're through with, the, you know, for many years after the, after they wore out Satanists and devil worshippers, they've turned to terrorists and, and Islamic radicals. And now we've, we sort of worn that out because everybody's sort of bored with that at this point. So what do we got? Ah, immigrants, illegals. Oh yes. We're, we're infected with all these illegal aliens, you know, and suddenly there's a big row about that. Well, I got news for you. We've had tons of illegal aliens in this country since, you know, uh, it's, it's whole history. Yep. Nobody ever, nobody ever cared about that. And for many years, there wasn't even much of a fuss at the border. You know, they'd come and go. Come up here, make some money, take it back to their families in Mexico. Come up here, make some more money, take it back there. Um, nobody got their panties in a bunch about it, and all of a sudden now, you know, people can't sleep about it. So uh, this is the latest, the latest witch hunt, uh, which is again an unfortunate one. Um, you know, people don't come to this country to abuse it. They usually come because they couldn't live where they were living because it was scary or dangerous, or they couldn't take care of their family. You know. You and I would do the same thing. Of course. So, uh, so, uh, that's the situation that we're going through right now. And it's a very unfortunate one. Um, hopefully there's, 
you know, there'll be some pushback on it. But again, the same thing was going on under, under Obama. You know, as much as Trump has been pushing on this, Obama is still considered to be the deporter in chief. Uh, and he set up all these aggressive institutions that Trump is just continuing to work with. You know? Yes, I, I still can't believe our choices were Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Like you, said. you would think that in a country <laughs> of this many people, you could find somebody smarter than those two. And and yet, I mean, we well, on the left, you know, they came up with Bernie Sanders. And if Bernie Sanders had been the Democratic nominee, he would have won in a heartbeat. Uh, True. Everybody understands that. But the right. Democratic establishment wasn't having it, you know, because he was he was not going to take care of his of the old people on Wall Street. And Bernie Sanders has has his own feet of clay in ways. I mean, he's got five houses. You know, I mean, he's not some poor kid. Um, so he can talk a great populist and common man line, you know, but he's one of the 1% himself. So it's it's anybody's guess if when he was in the White House, he would behave a whole lot differently than than the Hillary Clintons and the uh, and the Donald Trumps. You know, you it's it's very hard to and of course you just because you get somebody in the White House doesn't mean that they're a dictator. They can only do so much, and then there are the other institutions of the government that the the uh, bureaucracies and the court system and and the Congress and the rest of it that all get in the get in their face if they try to push too hard against things. As we've seen, you know, Obama yeah. illegally uses his authority uh, to create something like DACA, which is a congressional power. The president has no power under the Constitution to create something like DACA. And then Trump tries to reverse it, and the court says, "No, nope, can't do that." <laughs> yes. So, you know, it's it's this is just a a big comic opera, and the only it would be funny if it weren't for the fact that a lot of people are getting hurt uh, and suffering while these kinds of games are being played. So I, that yes. makes it not funny. Otherwise, you couldn't you couldn't make this stuff up. In, in a, you know, if you've written a novel about this a few years ago, you couldn't sell it because the publishers would say, ah, unbelievable, you know. Oh, my. Yes, I agree with you on that. And earlier you mentioned uh, JFK. Uh, for some people, mm-hmm. Trump is our modern-day JFK. He, of course, has plenty of uh, scandals going around. Of course, one of those is with uh, Stormy Daniels, the porn star, who claimed to have an affair with the president. Well, a lot of a lot of precedents going all the way back to Warren Harding and so on. I mean, George Washington, you know, had mistresses and stuff. And yeah. So did Thomas Jefferson. Nothing new. Uh, certainly. And JFK was a pussyhound. Uh, at least he was a pussyhound with good taste. I mean, he got it off with Marilyn Monroe. That's so. true. Um, whereas, you know, who did Bill Clinton get? You know, Monica Lewinsky. I mean, you know, my my. Well, that, that, that's what Clinton, we. He, that's what we you know, know he, he of. Didn't have, he didn't have. He didn't have class. You know, if he was going to chase somebody around the Oval Office desk, at least, at least uh, Jack the haircut did that. You know, uh, <laughs> yes. you're going to have a, you're going to, if you're going to hit the sack with Marilyn Monroe, okay, that's cool. You know, and if if Trump is going to have an affair with a really good-looking porn star, I mean, why not? Hey, that's better than Monica Lewinsky, right? That's it true. Sounds like she's in a profession where he's actually abusing somebody's innocence, so to speak. So, uh, if he's a pussyhound. A lot of people, I, I haven't even looked at this gal's picture, but I assume she's reasonably attractive. If she's, she's a porn star. She's a pretty good looking uh, older woman. Okay. Yeah. Then there are a lot of men in this country who wish that they had been uh, under, under the sheets with her, too. Very so true. Yeah. Very yeah. true. So let's, you know, let's get a little honest about this before everybody starts having these big moral attacks on this. Oh, yes. And I, as I recall, all the people in Congress aren't exactly, you know, Puritans either. 
So there. <laughs> yes, definitely. I, of course, every time I, I have mentioned this, some people get a little upset, uh, with that, uh, bit of news. However, uh, w- what goes on between two people is really none of my business, obviously. I, I have it, you know, uh, my wife and I have a motto about this, which is as long as it's between consenting adults, just don't scare the cats. That's, that's a good one. I haven't heard that before. Yeah. And, uh, so we, we were thinking of having some, Baseball caps and T-shirts made up that just say, just don't scare the cats. That would probably and sell. That. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you think Donald... You know that you, you, oh, you saw the movie, you saw the movie Eyes Wide Shut, where in the middle of it, Tom Cruise winds up in the middle of this, you know, uh, satanic sex party, you know, where uh, everybody's in black robes except for the hookers who are stark naked and everybody's banging everybody else. Yes. And mm-hmm. I was saying to myself, you know... Uh, I can tell you that one of the things that's going to happen after this movie is that people are going to say, damn, I wish I could go to something like that. And it exists. Uh, you can look up an outfit on the Internet called Castle Events. And it's a European outfit which stages eyes wide shut parties at, at castles and fancy hotels all around Europe. I don't think it's migrated over here yet, but um, if you feel like you missed out on the party in the movie, you know, you can find it today. I'm looking at uh, it right now. Yeah, well, they asked they asked me at one point if I had any suggestions, and I said, well, if I said, just remember that that all the people in the movie who had their clothes off were uh, designer actors, you know, from Chippendales and uh, Playboy. I said, and most rich older people, as soon as they take their clothes off, look pretty scraggly. I said, so before <laughs> you allow nudity, you want to make sure that people pass a, a an eyeball test or spend enough time at a gym or something like this, so you don't. Get some real scraggly people. You know, those are the ones you want to keep robed. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. That, that's castleevents.com. Uh, I'm booking yeah. a trip right now. There you go. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, I've I never have... been to any of their events, you know, but they, they, as I said, they did extend an invitation. And I, thanks very much. I'll keep it in mind. But right now I've got enough on my plate and, you know, don't need any more complications. Michael, you're, you're telling yeah. me you never went to one of these parties before? No, no, uh, not yet. Anyway, uh, I feel a little sad that I feel a little sad that you never experienced the party like that. Well, uh, I'm actually, uh, if you know, to be honest, I'm sort of a sexual prude. I've, uh, uh, I've never had, uh, I've had sex in my entire life with only two people: my former late wife Janet and my current wife Lilith. And that's it. You're making me sad, Michael. I'm, I'm not a person who's run by his genitals. Uh, I think with my big head, not the little one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and that's just the way I am. I mean, I, I've always thought that sex is the most fun you can have without laughing. Uh, and I enjoy it, but it isn't something that I'm obsessed with one way or another. I'm much more interested in, in sex when it, it, uh, goes together harmoniously with love. You know, that's just the way I am. I'm sort of an old school. I'm not saying I'm, I'm a prude as much as I'm a sort of a romantic in that way. Understood. Yeah, you you seem like the romantic type, actually. Now that I think about it, I put all the all the girls and women that I've met in my life. I tend to put them up on pedestals. I really, really love women, and I admire them. I think they're gorgeous and wonderful. Um, most of the friendships that I've made over the years, I still have. I'm still in touch with you know girlfriends that I knew in high school, uh, and and uh, we all just get along great. You know, I mean, I've. Uh, 
as I said, I, I, I love the fact that there are two sexes. I think it's wonderful, and I adore women. Um, I don't feel any need to control them, possess them, beat them up, um, or otherwise uh, uh, damage them or harm them in any way. Quite the contrary. I think we should be nice to them and considerate of them. Since we're the, the, you know, the tougher and stronger sex, we should be protective of them. Yeah, I just think it's great. Imagine how imagine how awful it would be if there was just one sex. Suppose it was just men. Suppose there were no women. Wouldn't that be awful? That'd be depressing. Yeah, God, women are so cool. Yeah, they I, are. I've, actually, I've known I've known lots of them. You know, including some who are you know movie stars and and uh, glamour pusses and things along the year. They're just great. But would you vote for one? Sure, if she's uh, if she's smarter than the. Uh, I don't vote, you know. I never have. Oh, that's true. Yes. I said, but if I, but if I, if I were going to select somebody for a, a, an administrative or a political or or a company office or something, the, the Temple of Set, for example, has always had the same initiatory degrees and the same office openings for females as males. Uh, we've had, you know, the the chief office in the organization is high priest or high priestess, and we've had several high priestesses as well as high priests, and uh, we, we've never. You know, we've never put one sex above the other or below the other or anything like that. Yes, and and how is Lilith, by the way? Is she doing good? Oh, she's fine. She's she's uh, you know she she looks she's just as gorgeous today as she was when I met her in her in the 1960s, and uh, she's very active, you know, in um, in animal rescue and protective activities, which is one of her passions and interests, and uh, and uh, you know, uh, just in great shape. She, she she puts up with me, you know, there's something <laughs> we said for that, too. You know, we've been together since uh, 1973 or so. And you both look good together, by the way. Yeah, well, we enjoy each other. I mean, you know, people ask me, you know, who, who should I who should I marry or this or that? And I say, marry your best friend. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, and if, if love uh, grows out of that, so much the better. But you'll be a lot happier if you marry your best friend. Yeah, I think you're about right on that one end. Um, going back uh, to uh, you being a professor, uh, during your time of that, did you ever imagine that one day that uh, people would be shooting each other in a schoolroom so commonly? <laughs> um, no, um, it, I don't recall that it, that it happened a whole lot um, back then. At least not that not that came to my attention anyway. Um, I, I think that school shooting is a more more recent development. Yeah, more recent. Um, and I just don't recall, as I said, that, that that kind of thing came up as an issue uh, a whole lot. The, this, the level of violence and gun violence has gone up, you know, um, quite a bit recently. And unfortunately, it's a little bit like you know airline hijacking or any other kind of a fad. True. You one person does it, and the next thing you know, um, it plants the idea in the heads of a lot of other wackos who decide that that's the way to get famous, get noticed, uh, or otherwise, you know, make their point in history or something. I've, um, you know, I'm familiar with guns. Uh, I understand how they can be used. Um, I'm not a hunter. I'm a, an animal activist, so I wouldn't think of shooting any kind of an animal. Uh, I saw what the damage that guns can do in, in places like Vietnam and so on, so I'm extremely opposed to their use to kill other people with. Right now, for example, when they, some people, you know, Trump's, I think, suggested, well, why don't we start arming teachers with guns? And I was thinking to myself, for goodness sakes, uh, how about tasers? 
you know, or something like that. Yeah, that was the next question, let's, actually. Let's not, let's not have a let's not have a gunfight yes. in the school. Let's let's find some way of neutralizing people with with guns that doesn't involve in a in a combat. You know, I mean, you may remember Doonesbury, the old comic strip in which. Um, Gary Trudeau had caricatured Hunter Thompson, the famous journalist who oh, was yeah. a gun freak. Mm-hmm. And he had at one point, um, Uncle Duke was testifying in Congress uh, concerning guns on behalf of the NRA uh, as a joke in the, in the comic strip. And Duke was up there talking to the Senate and he was saying, and finally, senators, you know, when, when uh, guns are outlawed, only outlaws will have, have guns. And one of the senators said, Mr. Duke, are you aware that the overwhelming amount of gun violence takes place in the home? Uh, and Duke said, that's exactly my point, Senator. The Senator said, I don't follow you, Mr. Duke. And Duke said, well, look at it this way, Senator. Suppose you came home and your old lady took a shot at you. Wouldn't you want to be in a position to return the fire? <laughs> so that was Hunter Thompson and Uncle Duke in Doonesbury. Oh, yes, Hunter S. Thompson, great writer. Um you know, you've made a few movie references earlier. Uh, are you still watching anything recent or have you given up on, uh, Hollywood's original attempt, which is really nothing nowadays? It seems all Hollywood does is, um, recreate what has been done time and time again. It's, it's kind of like the presidential election. You, you would think we all, with all these great minds, we would come up with something original. Well, um, I, my eyes are starting to go on me because of my age, uh, so I, it's harder for me to watch things like videos and movies anymore. Oh, no. But I intend to be – I can still see reasonably well on a small computer screen that's backlit, so I can continue to handle some text, but, but videos and things like this are uh, becoming quite difficult. Anyway, um, my movie – I don't think I think the last movie that I saw was probably Indiana Jones number four because I'm uh, Harrison Ford's a, you know old buddy and I uh, like the Indiana Jones series um, wrote some Indiana Jones stories myself and things and uh, was very happy to see that uh, nostalgic um, you know reunion movie so to speak that ended up with him and Marion um, getting married at the end of it because I that also gave me a nice warm fuzzy you know when I saw that because I like um, Harrison Ford and uh, and uh, the gal who played Marion too. So uh, and that was the last movie you saw, Michael. I think so. Um, I you know the last the last big series that I saw, which I absolutely adored, was the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I thought that was just wonderful, and I was feeling ah. I was feeling so sad that you know J.R.R. Tolkien hadn't lived to be able to see it because it was just glorious, you know, and wonderful music and things like that. So I've written, in, you know, some of my books reflect uh, movies that uh, and and stories and novels that I've seen that I have a particularly strong feeling for. Uh, one of the movies that I sort of imprinted on as a kid was Walt Disney's Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, and uh, uh, a year or so ago I decided to write the memoirs of Captain Nemo. So you can go on and you'll find a book called Ode to Esme. Esme was his personal um, sea lion. Uh, buddy on the Nautilus. So uh, I decided to write the memoirs of Captain Nemo to show how he had uh, gone through his early life and become finally the Captain Nemo that you meet in the Disney movie. Uh, and had a very good time with that book. I've written another book called The Moreland Ale, uh, which is a, um, a, a sort of a 
dark parody, you might say, of the events of the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings from the standpoint of Melkor and Sauron uh, and Palando the Blue Wizard and so on, uh, and uh, the uh, Witch King. So you see how things, the events would look from the other side of the fence, a little bit like the Diapolicon, you know, <laughs> right. John Milton way back when. And I've also, um, the year after the first Star Wars movie came out, which was originally a standalone film in 1977, I got interested in that storyline, and I started writing um, some Star Wars material myself, which interested Mr. Science Fiction of Forrest J. Ackerman enough so that he serialized um, a chunk of it in his Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. And it's uh, a book today, a uh, fairly huge one, because I kept working on it for several decades, called... Uh, uh, fire Force. So uh, it, it goes off in completely different directions from the official Lucasfilm movies. It just, you know, you'll see some similarities there to the very first movie, but it has no relation to any of the others. But it was just a, a theme and a context that I thought had a lot of rich potential in it that could be explored. So I went off and did that. I'll give you some idea of my, you know, movie fascinations and interests. What, what about TV? Not, nothing there that uh, incited your interest. Well, when I was a kid, I just, I just, the most recent book I did was something called Ghost Rides. Oh yes, Ghost Rides. Which is, yeah, and Ghost Rides is a, um, it's as close as I could come to an autobiography. I call it an automobiography because I decided instead of trying to write a straight autobiography, which would be very complicated, as you can imagine from our discussions here, um, I decided to pick, I, I've been a car nut all through my life and I have always looked for fun cars to have. Um, I could never afford more than one exoticity at one time, but I went through quite a few of them over the years and enjoyed them immensely. So I decided to use those as a kind of a link over the years to different uh, interests and, and points in my life. I mention this because the very first exotic car that I had back in 1965 was a Lotus Cortina, which was an English Ford Cortina that had been modified by Lotus. And the reason I got interested in that was because um, I had a giant crush on Emma Peel in The Avengers. And she drove a Lotus Elan. So if she was going to drive a Lotus, then I, maybe uh -huh. I couldn't have an affair with her, but I could at least drive a, a car like her. So I was able to find a Lotus Cartina in Santa Barbara and get that. And the, these stories are all told in, in uh, Ghost Rides, um, including uh, some reminiscences that concerning my interest in Dark Shadows and my friendship with some of the ladies who were involved uh, with that uh, in the 1960s, um, and uh, a couple of reviews of, of uh, material that had been written by both uh, um, Catherine Ray Scott, who played Josette, and Lara Parker, who played Angelique. Uh, you know, both of them I just love dearly. <laughs> that, <laughs> so that reminds me. I um, yeah, that reminds I me. Your oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, so I so I always uh, you know so when I get Along the way, as I said, when I've watched TV and I've uh, gotten fascinated with something, I tend to internalize it and and magic it in some way. You know, at, at one point, there's a chapter there where I mentioned that I, um, for a while, I had a white testarossa, uh, which I was inspired to uh, hunt down. It took me several years to find one that I could afford um, because of Miami Vice. You know, Sonny Crockett was driving one of those around in Miami Vice. <laughs> That's a cool car. I want to use it. So I got it. I finally managed to get myself a white Testarossa. Very nice. Yes, so, yeah, uh, those are some good good cars. And then, actually. and then I've, I've been a James Bond freak over the years. So I've had a uh, a DB7 that's recounted in the book there, and later on a 
uh, a Vantage V8, uh, modern one, kind of from the Daniel Craig era, you know, and uh, and again had a great time with these. You know, I just uh, I said the cars of cars have been a close friends of mine over the years. I've I've loved them just the way I've had close friends with uh, ladies and uh, and you know men friends that I've had over the years. I was going to mention your eyebrows. It seems like everyone likes to comment on those. Um, <laughs> well, the women love they, them. They say, <laughs> I've been born. I was born with them. And uh, if you, uh, as a matter of fact, if you uh, pick up Ghost Rides and you look into it, and you'll find the the chapter where I am discussing the fact that Hollywood decided to have some fun with me and caricature me in the Omen movies. And I there's a picture of me as a high school ROTC cadet. Um, uh, in 1962, uh, right alongside the uh, high school ROTC cadet that they picked to be the kid in Omen 2, uh, where you can see how we are near identical. And you can see the old eyebrows right there. And to people who don't think I was born with them and who think that they could always be Photoshopped or something, I say, <laughs> hey, my, my grammar school was town school for boys in San Francisco, and they have all the old yearbooks for the class of 1960. So you can look me up in all the years ever since I was in kindergarten up through eighth grade, and you'll see the eyebrows there. So be my guest. Yes. Everyone loves your eyebrows, by the way. Yeah, well, they keep the rain out, you know. <laughs> by the way, you just reminded me. Uh, my father had a 1968 Plymouth Roadrunner. And, oh, way, way cool. Oh, my goodness. I wish he, God, never, you know, I yeah. wish he never sold it. Oh, you know, if there's anything that my generation has really enjoyed living through it's been the car craze era. I mean, we, we have seen the best iron, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's growing out of fashion now because of the antagonism towards fossil fuels and stuff. And also because times are tight and, and people can't indulge themselves. Right. Toys like this as much as they used to. But God, I grew up in the, you know, the, the fifties, of course, was mm -hmm. a decade of um, the great land yachts, you know, these things that looked like rolling jukeboxes, these huge monstrous, uh, you know, Wonderful works of art, and I've got a chapter on those, you know, in the book. And then, of course, later on, I I lived through the heyday of these things in the 60s and 70s, and uh, henceforth, I mean, I had a ah 1965 Pontiac GTO. Yes. Oh my. All right. Yes. I had a the the national commander of the Boy Scouts uh, of the Eagle Scouts before me, following of Bob Ballou, picked me up at the San Francisco airport. Um, one day, and he, he had just gotten his brand-new 1964 GTO. And I didn't know much about hot cars at that point. I hadn't yet been bitten by the bug. And I uh. said, Bob, what's a GTO? And he says, this. And he goes, wham, you know, on the floor. And three deuces all opened up at once, and the car <laughs> went bang, you know. And my skeleton went right out of the back of my body. <clears throat> and I said, oh, man. You know, or words that. That, you know, something like that, except that, you know, if, if we have PG... 13 people listening to the phone right now. I can't use the actual thing that I said, but I, you know, I was hooked right then. So eventually I spent several years with a 65 Pontiac GTO, which I thought was the absolute best year. And of course, some other muscles along the way. I had a, a Viper, you know, for a while, uh, which was a real pig of a car. Oh yeah. It was a, a midnight blue, uh, metallic. It looked like the Batmobile. <laughs> nice. It was wonderful, you know. It passed anything on the highway but a gas station. <laughs> and uh, good times, you know. So I, I had an enormous amount of fun with all these uh, cars along the way. Right now, of course, in my yeah. Well, what do you got right now, Gentile? I've got a, I've got a smart car, 
Uh, and But it's not just an ordinary smart car. It's the one that was specially modified by Brabus Tuning Company in Germany. Uh, so I have a smart Brabus at the present time. Hmm. Very interesting. And do you have one or two cars? Um, I just have that one myself. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, my wife has a car that she likes, and uh, that's it. So I don't have – I've never been able to have a huge stable of things. That takes too much money, and you're paying too much to insurance people. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, but uh, I've always managed to have something that I really enjoyed that I felt metaphysical about uh, at any one point in time. You know, I was kind of a big big daddy Ed Roth, you know, Mr. Gasser, or you might say Calvin and Hobbes, uh, Baseman Spiff. You know, that's, that's sort of my the way I've always enjoyed these kinds of things. Very, very nice, Michael. And I'm I'm trying to imagine what it is you do nowadays on a regular basis. Are are you someone who wakes up and has coffee and watches the news, or are you someone who drinks coffee and, and begins to write uh, things down? It seems like there's lots of people who do both. Obviously. Well, I um um I like coffee. Actually, my favorite kind of coffee is a an instant coffee called Kava, K-A-V-A, because it has the acid removed. It has all the, um, you know, it has the caffeine in it, but the acid is removed. I, I first developed an, addic- an addiction to this stuff back in my graduate school days when I had to sit up all night writing gra- graduate papers for my seminars. Uh, the danger with kava is that because it's non-acidic, you can actually drink a lot of it until your blood is about three-quarters caffeine so that when somebody calls you on the phone and says, hello, you know, you scream back at them. Um, but... Uh, so I, 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 I'm a coffee drinker. Uh, I'm also, a, a, I don't smoke and I don't drink any alcohol. So that's, you might say that's my, my liquid vice right there is kava. And uh, as I mentioned, I've, I've not been in really very robust health since the cancer talked it to me. So I don't get out and, and run around that much uh, as I used to. I'm pretty much uh, stuck around uh, right. home. But I can still work on the computer, which is like, so I've used the time like this to do a lot of the writing for the, these books and things that I've been working on, and that's kind of where I am right now. Very nice. Anything new uh, in 2018? Um, I just finished, you know, I, I just finished Ghost Rides as a book. I'm sort of taking a breather, and I don't have, um, I don't have anything definite. Um, I know there are some things that that I have always sort of wanted to do, but never quite got around to it, or I or didn't have the right inspiration. For example, when I was a kid, I was desperately in love with the original uh, 13 Oz books that Frank Baum wrote. Mm. Uh, the ones with you know Ozma and Dorothy and, yeah. uh, and the rest of the gang from Oz. Not the not the first one, you know, The Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. that you saw in the Judy Garland movie. That was sort of a, a, an early, the very first book that he did and, and sort of on the primitive side. But the later ones, which were very sort of um, in the Art Nouveau kind of spirit um, uh, with a lot of uh, uh, beautiful ladies in them that were all sort of Gibson girls and things like this. And I said, I fell in love with uh, Ozma at that time uh, and spent a lot of time in those original 13 Oz books. So I always was thinking to myself a little bit like I did with Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and Captain Nemo. It would be fun to write an Oz book, but to make it a kind of a sophisticated adult Oz book um, that isn't just a, a, uh, a children's you know thing, but a little bit like what Tolkien did for 
things like fairies and uh, and elves and things with his books. He took what were some sort of silly notions and he made them heroic uh, and epic. So I would sort of like to do that with Oz. I just don't know that I could pull it off. Um, when you're dealing with people like, you know, uh, the Tin Woodman and Scarecrow and Jack Pumpkinhead and the Wogglebug and TikTok, it's pretty hard to make these things into adult characters very easily. But that's one of my uh, possible you know, ways that I can go. That'd be interesting. I think you're a good enough writer to pull it off. Very interesting. Lois has always been after me to write a vampire story. Ah. Uh, but my problem there is that I wouldn't do it unless I could write something with as much class as the original Dracula by Bram Stoker. Um, my idea of Dracula is like the movie Bram Stoker's Dracula, which was a beautiful romance rather than a horror movie or or uh, a sex S&M kind of thing. So if I could do that kind of a vampire story, you know, I might try. Today, when you when you look at the average things that are being passed off as vampire stories, they're more more sort of, sort of uh, violent, sadomasochistic sex things, which you know, just just uh, just not my thing. Okay, not interested. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I wonder if there's ever going to be a movie made about you. I have a feeling that there might be one day. Well, uh, as I said, Hollywood took a funny shot at me when it made the second and third Omen movies, you might say, uh, when it picked actors who were basically my doubles, you know, for that, uh, although uh, they didn't consult me on the plots. Um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I don't know uh, that I would make a, a an interesting movie because I so much of what I'm interested in is kind of on the cerebral side rather than on the dramatic side. You could you could do something a lot easier with somebody like Anton LaVey because he was a very he was a showman and a public artist, um, not just a a, a thinker and um, and a dialectician, so to speak. Oh yes, now we are I coming. Mean, I've, I've been involved uh-huh. in a lot of interesting stuff over the years, um, you know, in government and special operations and stuff like this. But it all gets it, it gets so complicated that I, it would be very hard to put it all together in a movie, which is why I. Didn't even try to write an autobiography unless I hung it together with cars. You know, the time I spent, I was one of the Army's first space officers. You know, how am I going to, how am I going to um, add that into the mix? You know, I think I think there's there's room for everything. I think somebody's going to get it done eventually. And Michael, I do want to thank you for being a part of the program. I could talk to you all night, so I <laughs> I, I definitely will have to uh, book you again, and we'll talk more about. Uh, more of what's going on in current times. Sure. I'm doing my best, uh, as I said, through at least through these books like Fine Far and Mind War to, uh, uh, to at least plant some ideas towards resolving these things positively rather than letting the world just go to hell in a handbasket. And, uh, and I'm pushing every way I can towards compassion, towards animals and the environment, and for that matter, towards other people. So. That's about all I can do, and and from my somewhat limited influence, you know, but uh, that's kind of where my head is on these things. And uh, plug your website, Michael. Uh, well, the best, um, the, the best, the best way to look at all the books, which is where people can find out really the most about me, would be to go to Amazon.com and then just do an author search for Michael Aquino, and it'll bring up my authors page, which has a biography of me, and then also has all my current books right there with links to them. And that's probably the way to find out the most about me and uh, in a way that it will interest people who are curious. Very nice. So 
Once again, thank you very much for being a part of the program, and we'll touch base again in the very near future, my friend. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yes, sir. Take care, Michael. We'll speak again. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. You too. Good night. And that was Dr. Michael Aquino, great guest, and we'll be right back after this break. You know, you're going to have to shut up or I'm going to have you arrested. And welcome back to the program, and I believe someone is already on the line. What's going on, caller? Mr. Deacon, fabulous job this evening. Uh, thank you for listening, my friend. You know, I've been uh, listening to you for a while now, and uh, I like. here's what I like about your style, and this is not to... Uh, we'll use the term blow smoke, but because I'm sincere, um, you're very uh, polite. You're very methodical. You're uh, very patient. And, and what I hear happening is I felt like he, like you were friends and he was just opening up and really coming from his, his heart, so to speak, and just being very quite candid with you, which I was pretty amazed. Yes. So we, can I describe that accurate? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. We, we have a pretty good bond together. Me and Mr. Aquino. Um, I respect him and he respects me. So we have a very good friendship, I have to believe. And yes, the whole reason behind this interview was to sort of go over some of, you know, some of the negative out there, some of the, um, harsh criticisms he's received over the years. Well, many, many years, that is. And I personally don't feel that. He committed some of these things they say he did. You know, after listening to him, um, I have to confess that I agree, and I also have to confess that uh, being kind of a uh, more of a younger researcher in the sense that I've only been a researcher for about three years, that I've learned some lessons that initially some of these rabbit holes that I go into, I, I, I guess maybe it's my ego that convinces me to think that I've got it figured out, so I'll jump out of that rabbit hole and go in another rabbit hole. But then as time goes on, I learn more information. And then I realize, wow, maybe I didn't quite read that right. Yes. I mean, no, it makes perfect sense. I'm guessing a lot of people are, are possibly making the same error. Because I, I'm also wondering, and maybe you would know the answer to this, is uh, so he was with Anton LeBay, obviously, and then he left. And then that those incidents uh, occurred, and then he was accused. And I did some reading on the Wikipedia while you were on your break there. But I'm wondering, if, obviously, if, if he is being completely sincere, which I'm not, which I'm not going to question, is that he was to some degree set up. And I'm wondering if Anton LeBay, out of jealousy, maybe uh, possibly, do you ever consider that? I actually have considered that, but not, not to a point where I actually uh, sit down and, and really wonder and go in depth. With with that premise, have you asked him any? I'm assuming you guys have private conversations prior to the show. Have you ever asked him some of some of these questions that you didn't have a chance to discuss on the air with him that might reveal some more details that you can share? Actually, no. Really? Right. Wow. We're we're very open with with <laughs> how things are conducted. He has never told me not to ask him certain things. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, he's never done that. He's always been very respectful, and yeah, cool. he was. Quite shocking, quite shocking at times when he, not, not today, but, um, when he was going through these complications with the surgery, I, I believe I was the first person he wrote to. And he had mentioned that it was almost his end of days, which was kind of, kind of funny that he would say that. 
Well, I'm I'm guessing, but I haven't researched it. You're the only one that he's really doing these these really deep and revealing interviews with on the radio. I mean, is he? Ta- I don't know that he's talking to anybody else. Do you know? He does interviews with others out there, but mostly it's the same stuff that's always kind of uh, touched upon. Yeah. Usually just right. the negative stuff. Uh, none of these other interviews I've heard actually go into some of the things you heard tonight. Yeah, re- I could be wrong. Like the humanitarian side of it. I could like. be wrong, though. I could be wrong about that. It's just I don't have too much time to actually go and listen to interviews right. that he's done. But from what I've been told, he's not exactly that open with others. You know, when he won me over more so is when he talked about his uh, his you know views and opinions about the president. And then you mentioned Carter, and ironically, I feel the same way, which I thought that was wow. interesting, right? Yeah, that was kind of I was I would have I've heard things that I would not have expected to hear, and then the the fact that he obviously has it seems as though he has a, a care for animals, and he and he stated several times that he's a romantic he's, not, uh, he's a romantic yeah, type. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. Can Can you imagine for a second going through high school and seeing that guy in your hallway walking around? I mean, I can't even phantom. Yeah, I wonder, did he kind of dress up and play the role in high school, or did you have you ever been able to find that no, out? No, I, I don't know. I don't think that happened until much later. It appears to me that this, these trigger, I'm just going to use the word trigger because I can't think of a better word, but when he was in the service and he was experiencing, a peer, I'm, I'm going to have to guess, death and maiming. I'm sure he witnessed it in, in the war, and oh, so yeah. that triggered something in him that maybe caused him to go in the direction that he did, it seems. Yeah, I think that has something to do with it. And the other thing I wanted to wonder is that he mentioned Roman Catholic. His father, I read, was was it his father that was a, a Roman Catholic? Is that what he said earlier in the interview? Mm-hmm. It was his father. Now I'm wondering if there was any connection to the Jesuits, because that would have been that was the first thing that popped in my mind is if he had if his family had any connection to the Jesuits or it was just strictly Roman Catholic. And I'm guessing you wouldn't obviously ask him on the air, but I'm wondering if he had ever been exposed to maybe whether directly or indirectly any kind of abuse or did he was he able to slide out of that because as you know there's so much abuse that's been reported in the Roman Catholic you even mentioned that in your interview true I, I don't think he was abused though yeah I think he might have I think he might have revealed that already if he was yeah. he's an interesting character no no doubt about it and I honestly think yeah. it's a I think it honestly I think it's only a matter of time before Someone makes a movie about him. Yeah, you know what? I would hope that it would be done in a fair way, but as as you know, Hollywood. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he can't get away from from all those allegations. Um, I even told somebody uh, maybe in the deep state, or I just see. I'm just trying to figure out why he would have been accused, and and then there was no evidence. Uh, Either he's like the world's greatest liar, or or he was flat out, uh, you know, being used as a scapegoat. And I'm just, you know, that just, that's the, that's the part. I'd be interested in hearing what his theory would be on that. Cause he must have a, he must have an idea why, why they, they didn't, I can't imagine this just because, uh, you know what I'm saying? I don't know. I'm just, yeah, I, I hear you. The next time he comes on, I'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. I'll, I'll dig further. It seems like every time I talk to him, he reveals more. Yeah. And the other thing that would be, I mean, I'm sure, I know you hear about it cause I've heard your guests, other guests you've had on and then, what his thinking is, because all these reports now, even just in the last few years, with uh, whether it's satanic or not, I don't know. But the reports and the Pizzagate and the 
and the, and the child trafficking and, the, you know, the, they're eating babies. And I mean, all of it goes on and on and on. And, um, how he would, how he feels about that. And if he believes that's real, you know, these are just things that come to my mind. I'm just planting seeds for the next time. Cause I, I, I thought it was interesting. <laughs> it was interesting. The whole thing. It was a good talk. Yeah. It was interesting just to hear, uh, just the regular things about him as well. What he watches yeah. is, I could already imagine what he watches, but it's, it's hard to picture, picture him. Especially when, when he was like in his, um, college years, especially. Mm. He's obviously a highly intelligent man. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No doubt. You know what would be another fun question to ask him is what he thinks about the ET phenomena. I, no, he said, did he not say at the end of the interview almost that he was one of the first space, S-P-A-C-E, space captains? Did he say that? Yeah. He talked what about that. What did he mean briefly. by that? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't understand what he meant by what is he talking like a secret space program or what do you think? I think on, you know, on the very last program I did with him, I think he went over some of that. Okay. I'll go back and listen to that. Yeah. One. Just go back and check that out. But of yeah. course it's another, um, black project that we won't really ever get any information out of him about it. I'm pretty sure. So I'm guessing he still has, uh, oh yeah. Uh, oh yes. And clearances that he's not allowed to reveal. Oh yes. I, I could only yeah. imagine. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I couldn't even read all of all of his accolades here on on, on the air. There's there's just too many, and uh, as you know, many people out here have ADD. <laughs> uh, they're gonna cut out real quick if I if I open just listing all of his his accomplishments. Yeah, you're gonna be like, oh my god, when is this gonna stop? Yeah, that's the one thing I've noticed. Uh, I. I... I don't know how much social media you do, but uh, I'm on it quite a bit, and I I see these uh, theories, well, whether they're conspiracy theories or they're theories or the realities. Sometimes you just don't know exactly, but some of these stories can get generated, and then before you know it, people are, are just start posting things without doing any research, and then it's like a snowball, and suddenly what started off is just a you know, maybe some ideas and possibilities, suddenly it becomes a conspiracy theory. Yeah, it becomes a fact. Yeah, and it's it's kind of annoying sometimes because I uh, I almost need like a social media police. It's like, hey, now, slow down there, fella. That's the problem with the Internet, though. Yeah, exactly. You never really know if you're getting accurate information or not. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's the trouble with being alive in 2018. You don't really know who you can actually trust. Yeah. What's your take on this crisis actors? Because, I mean, I kind of believe that, that based, I mean, again, it's without actual evidence sitting here in front of me, but I'm under the impression that there is there is some truth to that. But do you have any research or theories on what you think that these false flag events? Oh, hold I'm on. Saying that, Wait, hold on one, one moment here. Hold on. Right. And I believe Max is also joining us here in this conversation. Uh, Max, okay. is that you? Oh, good. Good evening, gentlemen. Ah, there you are. What a great conversation you guys are having here. Yes. Super, Uh, thanks. Did you hear his question? Uh, Yes, I did. A part of it, I I had a little bit of technical difficulties there. Ah, yes. Go ahead and repeat it if you want. Yeah, Yeah, he was talking about crisis actors and the whole Valentine's Day massacre that occurred out in Florida. Right. And, yes, you, you were asking if I believe that these were crisis actors, correct? Yeah, or if maybe not all of them. I mean, it, it certainly appears as though, and I'm only looking at this without evidence or facts, but it, what appears is that 
this this kid David Hogg is and if you listen to all his interviews and you look at his information, he's just not always consistent. But the point is is and I don't know that he's twenty seven or twenty five or went to school in California or he went to school there. I mean, it seems like there's so many reports about the guy. I don't know which one to believe. I don't have the time quite frankly to try right. to figure it out. But but his father was yes. in the FBI, and, he, and if, I don't even know if that's true, but let's assume that his father was in the FBI and did work under these special programs. You know, and I am a firm believer MKUltra is 100% real, and so it just has the, the smell of that type of feeling like he was kind of groomed for the position to be the spokesman for this. You know what I mean? That's just my conspiracy thinking mind working right there. But I'm curious what you guys think. Cause that's, you guys a fair that's a fair thought. I, I, I don't know 100%. For certain, if he is a crisis actor, but it is fairly odd, given the fact that all the circumstances that you just mentioned are present, it is rather unusual, especially that he, from what I, yeah, from what I had read and seen, it definitely seems like he's been groomed yeah. to a certain mm-hmm. degree, right? Mm-hmm. What about you, Max? What's your take? Uh, sure, a similar perspective on that, I definitely think that um there is some potential grooming there i i'm fascinated by all this stuff it's quite disturbing to say the least though uh i'll leave it at that there's i have a bit more to share regarding that but i'll i'll leave it at that for now by the way i have to say i have to agree with you i, I can't remember your name eric eric uh, oh yeah this is eric i'm sorry eric. about that i eric. forgot yeah, eric to the awakening man you're your newest uh, fan and friend. <laughs> yeah, I share the same sentiment. I, I, I dropped the other guys, and I'm just going to listen to Michael for a while because I like his style. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say it's uh, it was good to really tune in. I had had some issues previously, um, some tech issues, and I couldn't um, get the show live. And I love listening to it live, but I was obviously catching the uh, the YouTube feeds. And this was just to remind me of a classic discussion there and i was listening from the car man and it just sounded so good your interview style uh the way you make the guests and i think this is a commonality between really good hosts is you kind of feel like you're in the room with that person that guest and that's what it felt like and uh, it's raining here in los angeles so oh perfect oh my god it's you sounded fantastic man i was here in the rain hit the car window and then you know um ma that's what I always envisioned, you know, that sort uh, of scenario is going on while people listen to the program. Uh, for those who are driving around or at work, it's a perfect uh, little setup there. Oh, my God. And Aquino is just, just a really great discussion there for all the reasons that, uh, uh, Eric, you know, you mentioned it's just one of those situations where you have a just a great interview and just a really riveting guest. I mean, he's been on the show before. I always love when he comes on and shares. Uh, you know, just a wealth of knowledge, but, um, as some of the funny stuff that he said, it, it's interesting the stuff that you were able to kind of get him to talk about, you know, he's, oh, yeah. he, and he had me cracking up about the, uh, the, uh being a sexual prude. I wanted to die. I wanted to die. I wanted to die when he said that. <laughs> yeah. He said, I was, not- you, you know, a part of me wanted to go further into that. I wanted, yeah. I wanted to ask him about his wife, Lilith. I was going to say, are you still, you know, are you still knocking that out? <laughs> you were real. I was, honestly, I was almost going to say it. I was close. And he would have told you the truth. He probably said, well, I was a few months ago, but I'm a little under the weather at the moment. He would have told me. He would have told me. He would have told you. Yeah. He would have laughed him and he would have told you. <laughs> yeah, we, we have that, that relationship now, I think, where 
I could kind of say outrageous things and he won't get too offended at all. Yeah, yeah it was great. It was, it was cool when guests really opened up and you get to kind of, you know, peek behind the curtain. Yeah, that, that's that's kind of the point of of doing these kind of inter- interviews with with these individuals. It seems like everyone out there always wants to bring in uh, these guests, and, and they want to talk about the same thing they talk about in every other show. Right, yeah. that's so true. And he's not run by his genitals. Oh, oh yeah, that was classic. Uh, a car is a classic <laughs> car conversation. Learned about a different coffee that I've seen in the stores, but I didn't know that uh, it didn't have the acid in it, so I was. I was intrigued by that entire discussion from the beginning to the end. That was actually the most educational comment he made all night because I have problems with my stomach because I like coffee. and I'm not thinking about the acid. So now, I mean, he could have solved my whole acid problem. Me too. I'm with you on that. (laughs) Yeah, most writers. Was was Kava? Is that what it was? Kava. Kava. Yep. Yeah, Yeah, Mm -hmm. most writers I know, usually when they wake up, they'll have coffee and then they'll start writing. Yep. That's their process. We've had that convo, actually. Yeah, that's true. That's very although, true. Although late nights, I'm usually under the influence of the exact opposite of a coffee. Yeah, you're up to no good at that hour. <laughs> uh, now, have either of you guys researched the set, S-E-T? The, I mean, I don't have a tremendous amount of knowledge about The set. Temple of Set? Well, the actual what ancient Egyptian god, apparently, according to obviously his beliefs, is this, this was the god that came to him that said that... Uh, that, that, that Satan, it, that it's not Satan, it's Set. I am the God. And so it seems like that's why he went the direction he did. Right. right? Am I right or wrong? No, or you're right. No, you're right on that. So what, who is Set? I mean, do you, if either of you, I'm just wondering if either of you two guys done any background research on Set, because I haven't, so I'm just trying to get some knowledge out of it, if you have any. Yeah, well, that's, that's going to take a long time to explain. They believe that Set is the one real God. And it goes way deeper than just that. Um, I will say one thing, though. Someone had emailed me ab- about the Temple of Set, and they were almost like they were trying to recruit me. It's kind of, it was a little <laughs> odd. No, I know very, I know very little of the Temple of Set, to be honest with you. Yeah, me too. I've heard a little bit about it, but I'm unfamiliar. Like, I'm, I'm, I don't know all the inner workings of, of the Temple of Set. I just know it's, um, I think you have to pay like $5 or something just to get in. I, I think, it, I think I had asked them on the last program about that. I'm, I'm also curious if, I mean, when they're performing their rituals, uh, and their, whatever the practices are that they're performing, if, if that is above top secret or if he could share, give us some ideas. Oh, no. He, not- no, he, he could, he could definitely tell you all those things. And matter of fact, I think we even talked about that on the last program. Now that I'm thinking about it, I need to go to the last program, I guess. Yeah, we, we covered we covered a little bit more on that on that note. Okay, so what's your take? I mean, why why do you think people are drawn to these types of uh, we'll just call them gods, just for the sake of this conversation, and then they they understand that there's through the you know uh, occult uh, black magic or, or just the esoteric whatever you want to refer to it as that they 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 believe for whatever reasons that if they perform these rituals that they're going to get something as a result from it and so what do you, I mean what why do you think people are drawn to that so much why can't I mean for me just my personal style is 
you know, I don't feel drawn to doing that type of stuff. I'm not religious. I don't have, I'm not Catholic Christian. I'm not the atheist. I'm just, I'm just, you know what I mean? I just don't see, I don't understand why people feel the need to get into that. I mean, well, why people, that. yeah, I understand why people uh, feel the sense to belong to something of this nature. I think that's what you're saying. And I think it yeah. might be the same reason why some people are um sports fans. Why some people are, are, are those hardcore fans that exist in, in sports. Uh, those are the same people who uh, just cling on to certain things. It's a part of their identity. It's their part of their sense of belonging to something. I, I think it goes hand to hand with, 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 uh, people that get associated to a, a group like this. Uh, Max, would you say that's a fair assumption to make? That is an interesting assumption to make. I, it's hard to say. I think it's hard to say. You know, with with yeah, sports, it's a that's something difficult. I can relate to. With uh, you know, especially coming from a city that that was such a part of the identity of the city, and it's such a big part of my upbringing. So I I, I could see where that would come from, and I could see where that uh, mutual gravitation towards something would be. So I I definitely uh, concur on that. Uh, but um, yeah, it's a it's, it's a fascinating uh. I guess discussion to have really. It is. Yeah. Have you had any uh, guests on Michael that have, that have talked about the, we'll just, I'll just use the term inner workings of the, uh, we'll just say that you will just use the term Illuminati or they, they, and of course there's a lot of innuendos that there's different types of quote unquote satanic type practices that are going on in the Hollywood area. And I actually know some people that have told me some stories from their own personal experiences that led me to think that there's some validity to some of these stories that we hear. Have you guys heard any stories or experienced anything or have anything you can share? Well, actually being out here, yeah, I think that, that people are uh, exposed to a lot. So you can be influenced by a lot. You know, the, uh, there's there's clown parties, for, for goodness sakes. I mean, people worship clowns. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that go on in Hollywood and I think in general that uh, you could be gravitated towards, uh, especially when you're dealing with people who have rather addictive personalities. So, uh, yeah, um, absolutely. What about you, Michael? What have, what have you uh, heard or experienced that you can break out here this evening for us? I don't think I could share in some of those stories, to be honest yeah. with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'm gonna, I can't get in trouble with those folks now. <laughs> I'll tell you, oh, really? Oh, okay, hold on. So you're saying that you have knowledge, but you're just not privy to discuss it live on the air? Is that what you're saying? You know, there's a lot of things I can't discuss on the air. You're being serious right now. I'm being dead serious. There's uh, all kinds of things. Uh, Max knows that there's lots of things I can't talk about. Oh, yes. Oh, Oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. Okay, well, I look forward to having a private conversation sometime, man. Well, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was invited to this party. Uh, it's called the Omen House. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's right down the street from where the uh, the Manson murders occurred. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. And this guy, David Omen, lives up there, and it's a, it's a haunted house. And anyway, there was a Halloween party up there. As a matter of fact, I got invited from the Jimmy Church crew, and uh, we were we were doing the show. And then after the show, the uh, one of the people's there's uh, mother had recently died, so somebody was there, and they were they got to put a table on. They were doing like a little seance, and they're trying to summon this person that had died to have some communication with it. And I was standing behind the the lady that was kind of conducting the, uh, the the ceremony or seance, whatever you want to call it. And I was 
and I was looking out the window as I'm listening. Uh, it was a sliding glass window, and I had never seen anything that was ghostly like ever in my life until that evening when I saw this uh, light that looked mostly white, but as it moved, it, it had like uh, like maybe some red and blue and orange and green, almost some of the colors of the rainbow. But and it went like within a second, but it was so obvious that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't drunk, I wasn't stoned, but I'm just saying whatever I saw, I know what I saw. And there was another lady that was right in front of me that happened to be looking out, and we both at the same time said, oh, did you see that? And nobody else saw it but us too. But anyway, it was just, it was interesting because uh, I heard some stories that evening that were, I was told I can't repeat on the air, but there are some interesting stories. And uh, there was a girl there actually that was trying to, uh, that was with this guy who's actually a Hollywood actor. Um, he's, he's done some shows that if I told you, you'd know. But anyway, uh, she was kind of talking to me on the side, telling me what an awful person he was and all these awful things he does. And I'm like, this is strange. I don't even know this woman. Why is she telling me all these things? And then at the end of the night, she says, you know, we should get together and have coffee sometime. And I thought, well, I don't think I want to go there. Just even though she was attractive, I thought, I don't want to go there because you're with this guy and you're telling me you're not with this guy. And it just seems too strange. Long story short, she goes, well, you know, uh, I'd like to invite you to one of our Scientology meetings. Oh, yeah. Oh, here we go. (laughs) And that was my out at that point. I said, no, I'm sorry. I don't participate in any of those kind of activities, so I can't. That's a good thing you didn't. Yeah. I've heard some bad shit about the, uh, we could say shit on your show, can't we? Sure. Why not? (laughs) Yeah. It was like, yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's interesting. All right, buddy. Well, thanks for the call. I do appreciate you um, phoning in here. Right on. Well, thanks for taking my call, and uh, you have a good evening. I'll talk to you in the future, brother. All right, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. And there he goes. That was Eric there, ladies and gentlemen. Great guy. Yeah, you know, lots of things that he asked me there um, was stuff I covered on on the last um, interview I did with Mr. Aquino. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, I can't even remember some of the rituals that... Uh, he talked about the last time he was on, you know, um, usually I take notes for, for these interviews I do with Mr. Aquino, but like I mentioned uh, earlier, those go out the window really quickly. It's, it's kind of hard to, um, come up with any, any really good notes, uh, for Michael whenever I have him on. Right. By the way, I want to say one thing, uh, Michael too, about Michael, hopefully he gets, um, better and gets well soon sounds like he's had some rough times i know his progression is sort of um manifested as as you've been interviewing him but uh yeah i, I want to send him some good wishes yeah that's nice of you i think he's doing better yeah he's yeah, better he's on in better spirits today than he did the last the time la- yeah the last time he didn't seem too happy did he no yeah it's pretty uh morbid i was like damn um but yeah, i so- noticed that too he was a little darker the last time huh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But he's real. He keeps it real. It's interesting, his backstory, some of the stuff that uh, he's been accused of. Uh, oh, it's pretty horrific. Yeah. Some awful things he's been accused of for, yeah. for many, many moons now. But good, good discussion, to oh, yeah. say the least. Yeah, and I have fine. to tell you, just bringing it back to how it sounds in the car, man, and with the rain in the background, and oh, it's just... It's really just absolutely riveting, like watching a good flick. Yeah, that's something I, I've been really trying to uh, emulate for a long time now, that that sort of effect on someone. But, of course, many people don't listen in their cars. 
So it's really rare that I, I get someone to mention that they listen live while driving around. That's uh, pretty interesting. It's a beautiful thing. It's perfect for the city. I almost feel like it's thrown back in time. If we could go back to the days of those, those analog, uh, use even the microphone. I could, I could see you at, you know, what's that old school desk microphone or one of those old, uh, I forget what they call those mics. Those hang down that look like a giant. Oh, uh, yes. You know, that's, <laughs> that's just, uh, I can see that. It's, it kind of feels that way. It has that feel, especially driving through Los Angeles. That's awesome. Oh, man. You know who isn't feeling awesome though is that Heather Locklear. Uh oh. She took a bit of a beating recently. Did you, did you see that? Yes. Beat the hell out of her. Jeez. Holy crap. For those that don't know, um, Heather Locklear, she was uh, arrested for alleged domestic abuse, uh, including that she told cops that her boyfriend choked her to yeah. the point where she couldn't breathe, if I remember correctly. And that's the Ventura County Sheriff's deputy, uh, who said this sort of thing. I guess police heard arguing coming from their bedroom. And, well, ladies and gentlemen, I got to say that that's pretty normal stuff, the choking. It seems like every woman really enjoys that sort of thing, right? My God. The choking. got to be careful out there, boys. You might have a lawsuit on your hands. Well, you know, I don't try that. I'm a brother. So, I, you know, I oh, can't even yeah. try that. You, you shouldn't do that, Max. They'll, they'll definitely get you on something. <laughs> they'll be like, he's black. Exactly. He's guilty. Yep, guilty. Yeah, they're not, they're not going to play games with you. They're just going to lock you up. <laughs> they won't even talk to you. <laughs> Especially out in LA. Oh no. Yeah, you don't want to talk to the cops. That's not good. Hilarious. By the way, have you seen any good movies lately? How's your, uh, have you seen anything that's kind of... It's funny you say that because I, I haven't actually been watching anything good. It's all yeah. been awful, awful movie after awful movie. Um, I, one of the last movies I watched was, was Tremors. Okay. Give me a break. Mm-hmm. I see. Tremors. Yeah. And by the way, the movie Tremors 4 is coming out. Don't get too excited. Uh, as you know, I am a fan of terrible horror movies. And for the past yeah. month or two, I've been watching terrible horror movies. And of course, Tremors has always been a movie I've liked since a kid. And yeah, it's, it's back. the last one I saw had Jamie Kennedy. And I just felt like punching him right in his stupid face. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I just felt like punching him. He is awful. I, I just, I think he just stinks on ice. A, a bit interesting to watch. I'll just put it that way. I can't, I got to watch what I say. I'm too close to the source, if you know what I mean. Oh, really? You're close to people that are in the production team there? <laughs> uh, is that what you're telling me? Yeah, let's, let's just say I'm close uh, to, uh, some of the people that, uh, that are involved uh, in that abomination. <laughs> Indeed. Oh man. Uh, I feel awful. I know, I know of some people that put it that way. It's, well, I mean, it's no Sharknado. True. True. You know, I tried to get that director on the program, I, but, uh, he, I don't think he wanted to be on after I had asked him what drugs he was using when he made that. He responded to that too, didn't he? He said, I, uh, I think he said crack, right? Yeah, or something. Yeah, I thought it'd be shrooms or what a what a weirdo. I'm not sure. I like shrooms. Oh, the, there's oh, um, yuck nasty. Put down shrooms, Max Paul. Oh no, oh, this has just gotten this is gonna be hell. The the show just got worse. Hey, no, son, hang up. God damn it. <laughs> well, up, sexy sluts. Thanks for having yeah. me to the call. Yeah, thank you, buddy. How are you? Did you enjoy tonight's program? I did enjoy tonight's program, man. Very cool. It was a very interesting 
uh, guest, and of course you were listening to me and Max talk about awful movies, and um, I have to go back right again to awful movies and television. I had been pestered on social media about The Walking Dead, and if I've been watching and watching that, and uh, I have I'm to- never seen an episode. I'm never seen an episode of Walking ah. Dead or Breaking Bad. Hmm. Interesting. I am not. You know, I try to give The Walking Dead a Try to give them a bit of a chance. I tried watching where I left off, and I gotta say, I'm just not, I'm just not that interested at all anymore. Yeah, I haven't watched this season. It's I just been... don't care. I just don't care about the characters. I'm, I'm glad that Glenn died. Uh, aside from that, the show stinks, and you know, I'm happy that Glenn died, and that's about it. I played the game, The Walking Dead, when it first came out on like Xbox 360 or whatever, but I'm, ne- and I guess it was based on the whole, television show because you know the little um character where it goes where it breaks to go into um storyline that's all taken from the movie and i was like yeah i don't think i ever want to watch this <laughs> ah, cool i don't blame you for that no doubt what's up with you guys max pole how are you doing tonight brother yeah how was oh, max just hanging out hanging out with you all you know good yeah. times uh, it's a good times. Oh my, everybody get naked. I, I know your punch phrases, bro. I'm actually asking you, are you okay? How are you doing? So much abuse from this guy. Oh I, my I, God. I, Michael. Oh, that was a weird little thing there. I heard yeah, you like five Michael. times in a row there. Ooh. Max Cole's got a DJ at his house. I know. You heard that too, right? <laughs> Hell yeah. I, 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 I. I know. Or did you, did you, did you scratch a turntable? What was going on back there? Weird, I didn't even hear it. That's, that's, I don't know. Oh, someone's cracking. It might be your microphone there, Ma- uh, Max. I'm not sure. Yeah, we're, we're losing you. You hear that buzzing sound? I do hear that. That's not good, Max. Is it your mic? It's not me, man. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the, uh, I like it though. Whatever's playing, you know, whatever's going on back there, you know, a little sound effect action, maybe a little, uh, it is like a sound effect. Yeah, it sounds like um so many too many microphones laying across um electric cords. That's true. It does sound like that. <laughs> are you are you Very on the next tell, Max Pole? Get your next tell away from the speakers. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being in the radio a radio station and being like, "All right, you next tell motherfuckers, put, put them things far away from all the equipment because that um two way the chirp." That always fucking interacted and interfered. Interfered? <laughs> Wait, fuck you. I said it right the second time. Interfered with um, problems. Oh, yes. <laughs> Got to keep that away, especially cell phones, too. Uh, near a microphone, you want to keep that away. Trippy. My bad. What are you guys talking about? Well, we're what, talking what, about all sorts of things here, but yes. Um, before you had... Bachelorette, Max Paul. Oh, you're Is asking Max? You have any stories about The Bachelor or Bachelor? No, I don't get into that show. I can't. (laughs) I can't. I can't do it. I know you can't, but I mean, we have from the reality. Nah, no shows. No shows like that, man. I just, I stay away from that world. It's not his style. I know. Ever since I started talking to Max Pohl, um, I get, I, I can't watch movies without being like, yeah, she fucked her way to get up there. That's the truth. There's so much of that that goes on though. Man. Now you know how I feel after I watch a Harvey Weinstein production. I know. That's all that goes on in my mind. I'm just wondering who did what. Dude, I, well, not not talking to Max Pohl, but ever since the Harvey Weinstein and everything came out, I cannot watch a movie 
TV show without being like, hmm. Yeah. I wonder what crazy days and nights.net is talking about this one. It really <laughs> you know? makes you wonder, doesn't it? Yeah, dude. Especially ones that have, um, longevity in the game. Not, not just skin in the game. Yep. Got that long skin in the game, Max Paul. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, the same thing for the music industry too. Oh yeah. Same thing for the, um, Geffen from Geffen Records. Remember him? Mm-hmm. Dude, there's a lot of shit, um, a lot of conspiracy theories tied to, um, the two guys that killed themselves. The two lead singers, um, Soundgarden and oh. the other guy. You know what I'm talking about? Who was the one who killed himself like weeks later? That, uh, Chester Bennington or whatever his name is? Yes. And he's from what band? Uh, Lincoln Park. Lincoln Park. Oh, that's right. That's right. Awful Yo, band. If you go and look at, um, crazydays.net, there's a lot of fucking blinds about that shit. About, um, not Chester's, but the, uh, god damn it, what's the dude from Soundgarden again? I'm sorry. About his widow and how she's trying to capitalize on everything and, mm. dude, there's a lot of crazy shit. Um, conspiracy theories that have backing up to it. Let's Talk say about that. Chris Cornell. Chris Cornell, yes. Right. Yeah, I had his name in my mind and I just couldn't repeat it. I'm like, what's his yeah. face again? Oh. <laughs> Yeah, it is Chris Cornell. Yeah, dude, there's there's some fun um shit to dive into when it has to do with them too and their suicides last year. And you think that's legit? Their suicides? Well, or yeah, I'm just talking about the conspiracy angle. Dude, I never I never will put my foot on a lot of shit unless I see a lot of fucking um evidence from both sides. I cannot say I think it's legit or not. I'm just telling you there's a lot of theories. There's a lot of uh rigmarole about um Chris Cornell getting contacted by kids that have been molested on um or not even kids, but there was a guy that was going to write a book about Geffen and expose him for the pedophile that he is. Ooh. And they were going to Chris Cornell about it in the first place, trying to find out, all right, we'll meet up this days. Like, there's emails between this person that got killed and Chris Cornell, who obviously committed suicide, about to meet up. They were going to meet up at a certain place on his tour. And like five days before he was, I think I want to, I think I want to say Kansas City, Chris is dead. Wow. And it has to do with, um, Bennington, Chester Bennington as well. Like, they're all tied into it. It's, and it has to do with child fucking trafficking, Pizzagate, and all that stuff. I don't know, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's very interesting. I I just don't have an answer for that. I've seen some of the, the conspiracies that go on, and uh, very quickly, too, as soon as he died, I swear I saw five different conspiracy angles just jump out at me. I'm like, whoa. I didn't even have time to read about the first one, and now there's five other ones now. <laughs> yeah, dude. Um... My bad, crazy days, crazy days and nights.net. Max Pohl and I talked about this a bunch of times. This website is supposed to be ran by an entertainment lawyer out in Hollywood that's been there since the eighties. Mm-hmm. And he's supposed to be, um, leaking things out about people, celebrities and, oh, this person's doing coke. Well, guess who just cheating on him and he can't find a thing and blah, blah, blah. And some of them are revealed. I don't know if the news got out enough where they're like, all right, well, this is um Justin Bieber and fucking what's-her-face that just had a kidney transplant that won't stop doing coke, Selena Gomez, <laughs> right? And some of them 
with Kester Bennington and Chris Cornell have been revealed like Chris Cornell's widow is doing some crazy shit. And it all has ties to do with this. Like, um, he'll write his, it's called blinds. It's like a little, um, type of, I don't know, this A plus person. It's a paragraph about what it is, but he doesn't reveal any names or nothing, but he reveals enough that you can figure the fuck out what's going on. And if it comes out in the news, like he'll put, he'll repost it the same blog post and be like, this is about Selena Gomez and Justin Bieber and Chris Cornell or whatever. I'm just throwing names out there. Again, a lot of them shits have to do with Chris Cornell that makes you want to be like, wow, none of this is in the news. None of this is even on YouTube news with the conspiracy fuckers. I don't know, man. There's a lot of shit going on with Chris Cornell. I'm sorry how I got on topic about this, but goddamn, Max, aren't you working on the back? <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, no, oh, man. there's a lot, there's a lot in there. Yeah. I, I just have no good answer for that though. Yeah. We can't have answers for that. I just don't know? have a good answer for that, but yes, it's just I did, puzzle, yeah, I did read about that though. It's it, um, strange. <laughs> Max Paul. Yeah, there, there's Max. I can't even believe he's here. I know it's nice to hang out with you. I'm telling you, it's been a while since we yeah, had it's been a while. I've been, I've been sick. I've been out of the game. That that happens in life. Sometimes you get sick and then you just begin to hate everything. Yeah. It's interesting what your mind does when you're sick or when you're having forced to stay in one place for a while. Yeah, your mind will wonder. That's true. It goes all over the damn place, especially when you're sick. Especially when you're sick and laying there and you contemplate everything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you can't move and you're like... Fuck you guys. Fuck myself. I hate myself. I hate myself. I hate myself. Exactly. So I'm glad you're feeling better. Yeah, yeah. I feel fine. Feel, feel about a hundred, a hundred and ten percent better now. How to throw that ten percent in there? Hell yeah, man. That's good. Then, then you're doing more than what you normally do, right? Right. Right, indeed. So. Once again, folks, it's been a, a great time talking to both of you here and I'm going to have to cut it pretty soon here. Any, any lads, any last words for you there? Uh, Mr. Yuck Nasty. Man, I love you and I love Max Pohl and I love Star and I love the gay guy that I forget his name. Where is Star, by the way? I haven't seen her. Where's she been? Wow. Yeah, where is she? She's probably sick. Oh yeah. Everyone's getting sick. It's about that time of year. Yeah, either you're getting sick or uh, you just got done being sick, like myself. Um, it's an endless cycle of nonsense, really. Hell yeah. Yeah, so any parting words, my friend? Man, I love you. I love Max. Max, I love you. You know oh, that. Man, you, know, you know how I feel about you, man. Um, oh, yeah, man. Both of you, you. Man, you guys are my friends for fucking life, man. Thanks for having me on the show. No All problem. Right. Always, Always fun to catch up with you, my friend. Hell yeah, thanks for letting me go nuts on some conspiracy shit all of a sudden. It's alright, don't worry. That's what the show's for. You go a little crazy, it's okay. Alright man, love it. I love you guys, man. I'll see you guys next week. Alright buddy, take care. Penis. And there he goes, Yuck Nasty. Uh, a very good individual there. Oh man. Love getting an so update from him. Yeah, he's a great guy. And uh, Max, once again, I, I do want to thank you for being a part of the program here. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. It was good to Call in and uh, hear that uh, that cinematic voice of yours there in the car, and uh, it's good to chat it up for a little bit. And what a great show it was tonight! And shout out to Yuck too. 
you know, I found out about that dude through you, actually. So, uh, good dude. Uh, but, um, yeah, man, great show. You know, keep up everything that you're doing, man. It's really nice to tune in and listen to you on these Saturday nights. And it's cool that you're doing these shows also on the weekdays, like these sporadic shows there and, uh, giving us some more ear candy. But, uh, yeah, thank yeah, you. Fantastic. By the way, I don't know if I've said this, that the new logo is fantastic too. I needed to shout that out too. It's, it's, uh, awesome to say the least. Oh but, yeah. Uh, That's a great little, little piece there. The illustrator that I have, he came up with that entirely himself. I take no credit for that. He just uh, happened to throw it on me one day, and I thought, "Wow, that's pretty nice. Good little yeah. logo there." Yeah, it's it reflects the character of the show uh, very, very well. It's uh, compliments you and uh, the work that you're doing, and uh, it's just good to see you doing your thing, man. It's always good to tune in, and it's good to hang out with you as always. Oh yes, I could talk to you uh, all night, as well as many other people here that that appear on this program. All of you have been uh, phenomenal characters in and out of these uh, realms here. Well, salute to you, sir. Great show, and uh, take it easy. All right, buddy. Talk to you soon. All right, sounds good. Take care. Peace out. Bye-bye. And there goes Max Cole. And if you are listening to this on a replay, keep in mind you can listen every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, live on the TuneIn Radio app. And if you enjoy this program and want to help fund this project, go to michaeldeacon.com and click that donate button. Any amount is fine. Definitely pitch in and help the live stream. This program completely depends on its listeners. And of course, that means you sitting there listening. Share this with your family and friends. I'm Michael Deacon. Thank you for listening. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place and life itself is a mystery. Until next time. Good night, everybody. Sherry. She's right in the court as far now. I'm not that way. I'm a Christian. Yeah. Not about it, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the Illuminati, yeah. We won't go into it. Yeah. Yeah. But the Illuminati yeah. certainly is part of the whole thing. But the top members of the Illuminati are open worshippers. I could tell I that all the mainstream media outlets were giving me like bullshit. How appropriate. I wish I could be in that ring with Holcomb right now. It's crazy. I had no idea this shit existed before 726. Oh, a Grammy. I like Grammy. I'm gonna keep it real. A lot of good content. A lot of, a lot of cool topics. You know, I, yeah, I feel, you know, fortunate to have an opportunity. Speaking of really, 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 you know, keeping Yeah, Mr. Bruce said. That shit. I, I like that, man. It's the simplest shit. You go in there, you see the buttons, and you say, "Anybody talking about midnight?" That's what I want. Just for what it's worth, I want to put in my two cents to tell you that it's been a blast. Yeah, it's been incredibly well-rounded. Introducing the greatest tag team on the radio. Guess what, motherfucker?